Summer driving is here, and so are the red-hot deals on the best tire brands at Dobbs. Money saver June deals on new sets of Goodyear, Cooper, Continental, Michelin, and Pirelli tires. Click on GoToDobbs.com to find your next set of tires today. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hi, I'm Dan for Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, here to share the easiest way to buy tires. Come to Dobbs. With the best tire brands and the biggest inventory, you'll get your tires the same day at the lowest price, guaranteed. Next time you need tires, get into Dobbs. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. With Barbashev, he scores! Barbashev ahead of Steam. They center, they score! Ivan Barbashev over to Braden Shen. And Shen with his second of the game gives the Blues a 5-3 lead. Bring out the Zamboni. 5-3, the Blues over the Nashville Predators tonight. Chris Pronger's number 44 retired. And the St. Louis Blues and the homestand with a great win here on home ice. That was awesome. That no, was a was, really fun game last night. Fun, fun, fun. That's a better way to start today with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Daddy Hendrickson. Two. Does anybody know the lyrics to that? I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's be honest. No, the answer is no. Fun, fun, till the daddy takes a two way. Is it the two way? The two way radio? That's what it is. We got it. We're good. Let's go, boys. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Just your typical Tuesday morning. It's 11.04. Your oh, time check on? brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Man, that first period. First 10 minutes or so, I was like, whoa, man, Nashville's real good. This is not the start that I was anticipating. Were you ready to ship off the Stanley Cup hopes at that time? And it was two straight games where it's like, hey, why can't this team get going early on? And that's something they're going to have to get figured out. And they will. It'll be fine eventually. But, man, the way they responded last night, seeing the line that they had put together with O'Reilly and Shin and Barbie, who, buddy? If this team is getting O'Reilly and Shin going, Alex, and that audio was courtesy of your home for the Blues 101 ESPN last night, that's what it sounded like as O'Reilly and Shin and Barbie put together 11 of the team's 15 points against one of the best teams in the Central. Man, if this line is able to start producing and you get something offensively out of O'Reilly and Shin, everything we've been saying previously about the offense, just multiply that by like two and that's how good this offense can be, man. This that was wow. It, I I was not expecting that, especially out of Shin. It's scary. Uh, and to your point about the first period, you know, last season the Blues were plus eight in the first period. They scored uh, fifty four goals and they allowed forty six goals. It was their statistically best period. Then you go to the second period and they were a minus eleven, statistically their worst period. So you kind of flip flop that, but. I mean, the one thing that was taken away from this Blues team was where are the guys that are always the ones at the top of the leaderboards and points? Where is O'Reilly? 
Where is Perron? Where is Shen? These are the guys that you knew they they were impactful to the game, especially if you look at the record of the team when Shen's not in the lineup compared to when he is in the lineup. You knew it was a slow start for them. They were coming up with impactful moments, whether it was the hits or the faceoff wins or the defensive play of Ryan O'Reilly. But you were waiting for that performance. And you went into that game last night. O'Reilly had points in four of his previous five games. And then, of course, that Toronto game where he picked up two goals. And then last night, last night, he put Shen on that line. And we even on the lineup game were like, where, where are they going with this one? And Barubi said Surprise, it. surprise. Craig Barubi I know. was right again. Barubi said it. He's like, look, he's like, O'Reilly's going. Barbashev's going. We got to get Shen going. Boom, you get 11 points from that line. I mean, they completely dominated it. And you know what I found in- interesting about that game, BK? Was that Nashville's number one defensive unit, Roman Yossi and his partner, they matched up against Kairou Thomas and Tarasenko. And guess what? That line struggled last night, actually. So what you have in front of you is a line that is your best line in Thomas, Tarasenko, and Kairou. And teams are focusing on them. And then now you just you just showed why this team is dangerous because you put your best defense on one line and you expect it to be a closer game, but you don't have an answer for that other line. It's like the greatest show on turf, right? You want to take away Isaac Bruce? All right. You want a Super Bowl. You want to take away Marshall Falk? All right. We got Tory. Yeah. Like you, you can take away two of the three, but you're not taking away all three of our weapons from us. It's just not going to happen. And it's the same thing for the Blues right now. You're going to take away that Thomas Tarasenko and Kairou line? All right. Go for it. But you're wasting that great defense that you've got there because we've got this other line that's about to come at you in waves. And you know what I also like? I thought Costin had a pretty good game last night. He, he was noticeable in a way that there have been times this year where he's floated in and out of games. I thought he was pretty noticeable last night. And when you've got these guys that are able to just come up with big moments for you, that's all you're asking for. I don't need them to be consistently great, especially on the fourth line. But if they can have a few impactful moments, all right, cool. We, we can work with that. And now if you've got at least two lines that are going at a really high level and then you get Buchnevich back and we'll see how they construct that third line. There are some really yeah, interesting where the hell decisions does this guy go? coming up here pretty soon. I mean, we were talking about this last night, Alex. I was going through. I was like, man, are, are they going to have to put like David Perron on the fourth line? I mean, it's like Logan Brown, David Perron. One of those two is probably going to end up on the fourth line. You know, I was thinking too, in like best case scenario, best case scenario would be that you can get Perron going. You put him with Ryan O'Reilly and Braden Shen on your number one line. Your number two line becomes Thomas, Kairou, and Saad. And your number three line goes back to your Russian lineup. Barbashev, Buchnevich, Tarasenko. Good luck deciding who's the first line if you're an opponent. Like if you're Nashville last night, okay, cool. You can want to go with the Thomas, Tarasenko, Kairou line. That's their number one unit. Cool. If you've got all three of those lines that you just mentioned, good luck. I, I mean, just throw them out there on the ice when one of the top threes out well, there. Well, that's the problem, and that's why the Blues should be a favorite in everyone's eyes because there's no matching up against. Your third best defensive pairing is going to be taking on the Russian line that had 26 points in 16 games. Like, it's dangerous every single moment that one of those lines are on the on the ice. The problem, though, is you just got to get these guys back so you can figure it out. But for what they did last night, the, the most dangerous thing for everyone else in the Western Conference, and frankly, the NHL, is taking on a Blues team that has Kairou, Thomas, Tarasenko, Buchnevich, Barbashev going. <laughs> and then on top of it, oh, guess what? We've got Ryan O'Reilly and Braden Shen also. That is so significant. 
having those two guys play the way that they did last night. And, and for O'Reilly, you mentioned this earlier, Alex. This is a continuation of what he's been. He had five goals and just 19 points in his first 30 games of the season. He was, as you mentioned, impacting the game in other ways. He's still very good defensively and on the dot. He was still really good but he just wasn't producing offensively the way that you expect him to. Some of that was, he said he came back and he lost his hands after the COVID situation. Some of it was just, he's going through a little bit of a dry spell. Well, in his last five games, got four goals and eight points. Braden Shin, two goals, two assists, plus four on the ice yesterday. He, had, he was asked after the game if he played harder because he was out and he disagreed with that assessment. He said it was something else. I don't think it's the time off. I think it's just divisional game. Um, they're a good team. We're a good team. Um, you know, you got to put your best foot forward and, and show up with your A game. And that was my mentality uh, coming in tonight. I don't think I had anything to do with the time off. Obviously, when you, you miss time, you get a little bit more hungry to play games and a little bit more excited. But, you know, I think it was just more so uh, on the matchup and who we were playing. Dude, he was a monster last night, too. I mean, he was throwing his body into everything. He looks healthy. Yeah. Like, that. that's the Braden Shin that is my favorite player to watch on the team. We just haven't seen that version of him the entirety of this season, honestly. He just has never looked like he's been healthy out there. And Berube said that last night after the game as well. He was asked, hey, what was different about Braden Shin? It's like, he's healthy. What do you mean what's different about him? This is Braden Shin that we all expected to see. Alex, I didn't know we were going to get this version of him. It, it almost is as if the COVID time off for him was kind of a blessing in disguise. It gave him a little bit of time to rest. I don't know if that's actually the case or not, but it feels that way after what we saw last night. If they can get this version of Braden Shin, the 20 plus goal scorer, the guy that is impacting the game all 200 feet up and down the ice. I don't know what the weakness is for the Blues in terms of their their top nine. They, they really don't have one. Now, we no. can talk about the defense. We'll get to that at a later time. But in terms of their forwards, there is no weakness up there. right No, now. there's not. And, you know, I was watching the game last night, of course. And, and while I'm watching it, you're seeing Shannon O'Reilly perform and you're you're watching Thomas and Cairo and their off night still is always so dangerous because they had moments in the game. You're thinking of where Buchnevich comes into this, and then, and I texted you guys because we talked about this last night on post game. The Blues need two guys on the forward position. They they're going to have to step their game up, or they're going to have to accept a new role, and they're going to have to put their egos aside and accept a role like Alexander Steen did back in that 2018 2019 season. Who is it? One is David Perron, and two is Oscar Sundquist. These are two guys right now. And, and look, David Perron has gone through a lot this season. He had the concussion injury, and then he comes back, and he's catching up with his game. He had the injury at the beginning of the season, and then he's on the COVID list, and he's just trying to get his legs underneath him. He's a minus three in his last five games. And before he went out, he had picked up six points in four games. And really, it's his line seemingly consistently that – Whoever is on it, it's almost the opposite of the Barbashev effect, right? Yeah. Barbashev's line always seems to figure it out. Struggling. Perron, it seems like, and I love David Perron, and I'm, I'm the number one fan of the guy. It just seems like it's not working right now. It's not clicking regardless of who his line mates are. He played 12 minutes and 47 seconds against the Washington Capitals, 14 minutes and 20 seconds last night against Nashville. Mm. He's got to get going. Otherwise, he's going to have to put his ego aside and understand that you might not be a top nine for us. You are going to be a heck of a fourth line player for us, but we got to get more from David Perron. Otherwise, Braden Shannon, Ivan Barbashev or Buchnevich are going to be playing on that top line. 
And then the other one is Oscar Sundquist. And look, Sonny is going to be as impactful as they come. Sonny is not himself this season. And I expected it because when you have two hip surgeries and an ACL injury in the offseason, you're going to have some time coming back. But if Sonny can't get back to his game by the end of this season, he might have to accept the role of the fourth line. I think that's his role this year. That's not a bad thing if he can play that role, because here's the thing. And this is what's going to determine the Blues winning a Stanley Cup. You got to have a fourth line that has the identity like Steen, Barbashev, and Sundquist. A line that's going to go out there and pulverize the opponent. On top of that, can score if you give them an opening, thinking that that's a fourth line, they're not going to do anything. They have to capitalize on it. Whether it's Logan, Tyler Bozak's going to be there. Oscar Sundquist is going to be there. And I would imagine David Perron's going to be there. But those guys are going to have to find their game because I thought Clem Costin had probably one of his best games last night for the Blues. Yeah, it's either Logan Brown or David Perron that's dropping down. Because right now, your top nine when fully healthy is for sure going to include these eight guys. Barbie, O'Reilly, Shin, Kairou, Thomas, Tarasenko, Saad, and Buchnevich. Those eight are locked into your top eight this year based on the way that they performed so far this season and just expectations moving forward. So you've got one spot for two players, and it's Brown or Perron. One of them's going to be on that third line. The other one is going to be dropping down to the fourth line. I have a feeling, Alex, and I know you're not going to like this because it's your boy. I think they're going to start out with Logan Brown dropping down to that fourth line with Bozak and Sonny. I think that's the way they start things out. If Perron doesn't get it going, though, I think whether it's in-game or going into maybe it's five games from now, I think you will eventually see Perron have that opportunity or unfortunately have the opportunity in his mind probably to drop down to the fourth line. But I think to start things out, it's probably Brown, and a lot of that is just seniority. Yeah. I think you you, you try to get it going with Perron first before you make that kind of a drastic move. And from the 314, Perron's been injured for weeks out of the season as well as on the COVID list. You guys got to relax on giving him a different role too quickly. Uh, uh, He's got time. It's not like he's becoming a fourth-line player, but you tell me where where David Perron's going to play when Pavel Buchnevich is back. Because Buchnevich is a top six player for you. He's got the second most points on your roster. You put him on your third or fourth line, that's not happening. So you got to get more from David Perron. And look, I thought Clem Costin had one of his best games, and he's put two games back-to-back that I thought he's been actually really impactful because he's playing Craig Bruby's system. He's throwing the body, he's forechecking, see puck, get puck, and he's putting shots on goal. That's what you want. And the Logan Brown and Clem Costin are two different players. Brown's got the size. He's got the face-off ability. He's got the, the passing ability. Let's have the honest conversation then. He's a center. Logan Brown is. He Logan Brown's a center. Night. Yeah. Logan Brown's a center. Do you consider at some point Tyler Bozak's the one that's the odd man out? It could get to that point, but I, I do know that Craig Bruby loves the leadership that he provides. And he's a PK guy. Like, he, yeah. he does all of the and things Logan Brown's that they not value, a PK guy. But I, I think there may come a point in time if Costin continues to play this way. Like, these are the tough decisions. You've got too many forwards right now. You, you are a good thing. You are so good up front that you're going to have a player that would play on most other teams that is not making the lineup. You're yeah. going to have a player on your fourth line that for some of the lower level teams in the league, like Oscar Sun- Sunquist on Arizona right now, top six forward, probably on this team. He's probably going to be situated as a bottom uh, as a fourth liner. Yeah. And you're going to have to put year. the ego aside. And that's how a team won the cup. And 
in the 2018-2019 season. And the only way this team is going to win the cup this year is if guys accept that role and buy into the system, which I have no doubt that this team will do that. A big win for the Blues last night in the division. They were able to catch Nashville in terms of the points. They do have a game in hand over Nashville. So right now they are second in the Central Division. A huge win at home for the Blues last night. A cool night as well with Chris Pronger's number going up into the rafters. We're going to talk to Barrett Jackman about that coming up at 11.30. Everybody's favorite, Mike Keenan, joining the show coming up at 12 o'clock. And our guy Jeremy Rutherford at 1 o'clock as well. Lots of Blues talk throughout the day today. Coming up next, yeah, I know, we've seen the text. Who so? Who so? Who so? Is he the starting goalie right now? We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Rudy Johansson to Forsberg. He shoots. Glove save. Husso. Short-handed into the blue zone on Falk. They shoot. Husso the save. 24 seconds to go. That shot deflected off of Forsberg in front. And what a glove save by Billy Husso. Yeah, I thought he was really good tonight. Um, he made some key saves at times, but he looked big in net. Looked, you know, calm and cool. Again, they, they, it's, they shoot a lot of pucks, this team, uh, especially from the point. They're D. And I thought that he looked big in that and did a real good job for us. And obviously, was a big part of the win. Who so? Who so? Who so? With nope. Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, nope. I'm Brandon Kylie. Ville Huso once again, great Number last 52. night. And Luke Korak has been all over this. He tweeted it out last night. At home in his last eight games, Alex, nine starts overall. Ville Huso 8 0 0 with a 1.5 goals against on average. He wow. saved 95% of the shots that he has seen. 8 0 0 in his past nine starts that's for Ville Huso at home. Great, but try and win a game on the road, am I right? Well, he's going to have to because in the next oh, three games, I can guarantee you he's getting at least one start against Seattle, Vancouver, or Calgary. And Alex, this is now a legitimate conversation to be had. What do you do here if you're Craig Berube? Because. I'm not trying to say that there's a goalie controversy here in St. Louis. There's not. Jordan Bennington is your guy, and he's going to be your guy in the future. I want to say that on the front end of all of this conversation. But I think there's a legitimate conversation to be had about who is your starting goalie right now. Because as of today, the guy that gives you the best chance to win, and I think it's almost hard to argue this point, is Ville Husso. He's just been flat out better for you over the last few weeks than Jordan Bennington has. And I think you got to stick with him for the here and now. That doesn't mean every game he's getting the start, but you've got Friday, Sunday, Monday. That's what the schedule looks like coming up. Avila Husso should get two of those starts. You could give him Friday and then either Sunday or Monday, and Bennington gets the other one. And you ride this until he ends up crumbling or he doesn't look the same as he did last night. But he's been too good for you to sit him out on the bench when Bennington is struggling the way he has been. Yeah, there's no conversation needed right now. You ride, you ride the hot hand. Ville Husso is winning you hockey games. He has won four straight in his games, although he didn't get the win against the Florida Panthers. But, I mean, he basically stopped 34 of 37 in that one. But you ride the hot hand. It's it's what I said when Charlie Lindgren was playing so well. It's what we said when Jordan Bennington has been playing so well. And it's what you need with Ville Husso right now. Because in this central division, 
one one loss, one losing streak can result in you playing in a wild card spot or being out of the playoffs. You can't afford that right now. And with all of these days off and with this upcoming break in February, you got to have both goaltenders ready to go. So I think Jordan Bennington's going to have to get into one of these games. But for me, I'm going to go right back to Huso on Friday because he's got the hot hand. If you look at it, that's another game where he is above 900 save percentage this season. And I gave you the stat on Jordan Bennington with below 900 save percentage. Ville's the hot hand. You ride the hot hand until he falters or until you get it back to back. And guess what? What I would do is Friday, Sunday, Ville Huso gets those starts. Monday, Jordan Bennington gets the net. And if Monday, Bennington goes out there and stops 33 of 34 or picks up a shutout, then I'm going to go right back to Jordan Bennington because he's my number one guy. There's no goalie controversy, but I'm going to go to the guy who's winning me hockey games. And look, Ville was awesome last night. I mean, there's no denying the saves that he made kept that team alive. Yeah, I'm with you guys. I would go to Huso Friday. I would go to him Saturday. And then Sunday, or Monday, excuse me, and then Monday would be Bennington. But to me, if Bennington plays well, and even if Huso plays well in those two games, I'd go back to Huso just because I've seen more consistency out of Ville Huso in the last, in his 10 games this season than I have from Jordan Bennington. I heard Jamie Rivers ask the question yesterday on the fast lane, and he was asked, well, is it because they're playing differently in front of Bennington? I think we've brought this up before. It just feels like they play maybe a little bit harder in front of Huso. I was stunned today when I went back and looked at the numbers. They faced the same amount of shots, so, and Villajuso was playing just a little bit better. I've got those numbers in front of me for you because I do think this is something that we should probably discuss. We've talked about this as well, Alex. Are they playing differently in front of them? Is this is this the goalie, or is it the team game that's in front of them? Shots against per 60 minutes against Jordan Bennington, 33.1. Shots against per 60 minutes against Villajuso, 33 identical essentially so far this year goals against on average despite the fact that the shots are the same 3.1 for Bennington 2.2 for Ville Husso on the season there's a, a stat called goals uh saved above average and if you look at that Bennington has basically been below average this year and Ville Husso has been slightly above average so far this year if you're looking at the high danger save percentage so the ones that are tough saves that uh, you need your goalie to come up with more often than not Bennington's been at 83%. Ville Husso's been at 88%. If you're looking at where the shots are coming from, the distance of the shots, it's nearly identical for against both of them. The team in front of them, if you're looking at the shot quality, basically been the same. The difference has been the goalie so far this year. And Ville Husso has just flat out been better. And yesterday, I was listening to your post game, Alex, and Joey Vitale was asked about what you do here if you're Craig, uh, Craig Burby. Here's what Joey Vitale had to say about the situation. Will he get the commanding start in Seattle, and then he will do one of the back, back-to-backs with Vancouver and Calgary? To me, Curbs, at this point in the season, I think you have to lean on the goaltender that's hottest. I know Craig Berube's has has this mindset that he loves his starter, and he wants to always give confidence to the starter in Jordan Bennington. But I do think that there are there are stretches that maybe you need your starter to take a little bit of a reset, and you just have to ride the hot hand. I'm with him. I think you ride the hot hand right now. I also want to say this, though. I don't think you're winning a Stanley Cup with Ville Husso as your starter. And maybe that's unfair, what I'm doing there to Ville Husso. I think if you're going to win a Stanley Cup this year, it will be because Jordan Bennington regains his form. He's a legit number one goalie in the NHL. They re-signed him to the big-time extension for a reason. They believe in Jordan Bennington. Use this time to reset Get yourself right. I don't know if it's something fundamentally that's been off on him. I, I don't I don't know or frankly care what it is. But once you are back in the saddle as the number one goalie, and I believe that Bennington will at some point, even if it's a month from now, 
that's what they need to be able to reach whatever the potential is for this team. It's got to be with Jordan Bennington as their starter. But for the here and now, you got to go with the guy that gives you your best chance to win because this division is so damn difficult to be able to come up with points regularly. Yeah, there's no goaltending controversy. So, like, don't read into this like, oh, people are trying to get Bennington out of St. Louis. There's nothing to do with this. Bennington would tell you that he is struggling. And you play the guy who's winning you hockey games. But Bennington's the number one guy. I fully expect after this road trip to see Bennington on a consistent basis once again. Bennington's going to get the net back, and they're going to give him the opportunity to get his game right. But it's just going to benefit a guy who might be going through a little bit of a rut. Here's the thing. You don't want Bennington sitting for 10, 15 days. That's just going to do worse to him. Sitting there, not playing, not getting opportunities, going through practice on a daily basis. Ville Husso is accustomed to that. That's what a backup goaltender's role is. So you got to be ready. Bennington's not accustomed to that. Bennington's accustomed to playing. So what I would do is I would ride the hot hand. Who's picking up points for me? But then I go back to Bennington and I give him that shot. There's no... You can win a Stanley Cup with a backup goaltender coming in and making some performances for you. We've seen it in the past. Matt Murray spelling Marc-Andre Fleury. T-Bone, you mentioned Andrew Hammond with the Ottawa the Senators. Hamburglar. The Hamburglar <laughs> coming through. Look, Bennington did it. Remember Jake Allen stepping in when Brian Elliott was struggling, and Jake Allen stole the series against the Minnesota Wild. It's happened. But Ville Husso in my opinion, is not going to be the Jordan Bennington this season that just goes and takes the net the rest of the way. Bennington's going to get the net back, and if you're going to win a Stanley Cup, Bennington's the guy. He should be the guy, and he will be the guy. I'm glad you brought up the point of you don't want Bennington to sit 10 to 15 days because things are going to get very interesting for the Blues and their decision-making with the goaltending because we're talking about riding the hot hand. The Blues have six games left, if I'm doing quick math here, seven games left before they hit this February break. Now, they have three games, I believe, three or four that they're going to get rescheduled. And I think there's going to be a couple and, they're going to be postponed and, and have to be rescheduled, and too. And they're going to be put probably in this window, maybe. We'll see. But, I mean, we're talking about possibly having this long stretch without games. How are you going to handle that with Bennington? Because I say, right, I agree, ride the hot hand. I believe you can win a Stanley Cup with Ville Husso because, I, to me, it's just whoever's playing well in goal should be the guy that's in net. And right now, you mentioned... I heard Curbs mentioned on the broadcast last night. You just mentioned it in this division. Curbs said you basically have to play 700 hockey right now because the way that the division is shaping yeah, you're out. You're playing 665 hockey right now, and you're sitting in a tie for third place. I can't, Two points away from being out of the playoffs. I can't confidently sit here today and say that Bennington's the guy that's going to prevent this team from going on a losing streak. I just can't do it. And that's there is why one you have thing to ride that hot hand. To so. here. Um, it, the the schedule is going to help him out. Because they're Especially forced in March and April. Well, I'm talking about in these next five games. Oh. They're forced to play uh, Huso and Bennington in the back to backs twice. There's a Friday or a Sunday, Monday, Vancouver to Calgary. That's a back to back coming up this weekend. And then the following weekend, it's Saturday and Sunday, back to back. So Ville Huso is probably going to start three of your next five ish. And Bennington's going to get two of them because of the back-to-backs. So that forces them to do, even if they didn't want to put Bennington out there, they're probably going to have to do that in two of their next, whatever it is, six games or so. So you're going to see some of Bennington. He's not going to be riding the bench for the next 15 days or whatever it might be. You're going to see him. He's got to take advantage of these opportunities. He's just got to start playing better. Eventually, it comes down to what is your performance and does that dictate 
and force the Blues to put you back out there as the number one goalie. He's going to be able to um, control his own destiny, really, over the course of the next couple of weeks. I would highly anticipate come post-break in February, which, again, they're going to have games that they're going to be making up, and I think there's going to be a couple of games that have to get rescheduled. But post-February, post-All-Star break, I fully expect Jordan Bennington to be back in that on a consistent basis. It's just for now, you need points, and you got to ride the hot hand. That's Alex Ferrario. He's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Questions and answers coming up in about 15 minutes. It's Mike Keenan at the top of the hour. But next, Barrett Jackman played with uh, Chris Pronger in the early 2000s. What was his impression of Prongs? And what was it like for him to watch Prongs' number go up into the rafters last night? We'll ask Jax next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Voice of Ken Wilson calling another Chris Pronger goal. Welcome back into BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. What a night it was last night at Enterprise Center. Blues beating the Nashville Predators 5-3 as T-Bone mentioned. And of course Chris Pronger's number 44 up in the rafters uh, with all of the other names that have been retired by the St. Louis Blues. As we head to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line, we welcome in former St. Louis Blues defenseman as he was in attendance for that Chris Pronger ceremony last night. He is Barrett Jackman. Jax, how are you today, buddy? And how was that ceremony last night? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, the ceremony was uh, was awesome. Uh, you know, it's cool to see uh, you know Al up there, kind of uh, you know passing on the uh, the speech and the the great words to, to somebody that uh, you know he got to mentor and you know one of the guys he got to mentor, but uh, such a dominant player for for so many years. That, uh, it was fun just to be uh, you know sitting in the background uh, being able to watch. Jax, uh, could could Pronger have done it any better than uh, than busting out a Bud Light at the end of his speech and taking a little toast to St. Louis? Yeah, I was giving him uh, some trouble afterwards, just saying that I uh, can't wait for that AB commercial to come out next week, and uh, you know, in collaboration with uh, Well Inspired Travel, his uh, travel company. <laughs> Jax, you mentioned Al McKinnis, and then of course last night the, the ceremony for Chris Pronger. You got the luxury of playing with both of those guys early on in your career. What, what was that like for a young Barrett Jackman to play with two future Hall of Famers? Uh, it, it was incredible. Uh, you couldn't ask for two. Uh, you know, better guys to, to teach the position and teach how you uh, conduct yourself as a uh, professional, uh, how you show up to the rink every night to, uh, to, to play games and every day to, to practice and get better. And, uh, those were two of the best. Uh, you know, I know Al passed on a lot of, uh, of his, you know, wisdom to prongs and, and helped him mature. And, uh, you know, Al and prongs both, uh, you know, did that for me. And uh, they were both very willing to, uh, uh, instill some uh, some wisdom and some uh, you know some some good habits and uh, you know eighteen year old come out of British Columbia and idolizing uh, you know Al and and Prongs for so long to to play with both of them was a, a dream come true. Jackson, I'm just curious because I can only imagine. I mean, we hear all of the time how intense Chris Pronger was. He wanted the best out of his entire teammates, and that's why he was so successful in the NHL. What was he like in the locker room throughout a season when a 21, 22 year old enters the National Hockey League? Uh, you said it. He was intense. Uh, 
you know, he didn't uh, didn't take anything uh, for granted, and, and he wouldn't let anybody else take uh, you know the work ethic or or their approach to the game. Uh, uh, he was very demanding on everybody, but that's because uh, he wanted to win so bad. And he went out there and he put everything he had on the line: uh, his body, his uh, uh, you know his his wisdom, his hockey sense. He put everything out there every night. And uh, if the guy next to him wasn't willing to do that, uh, you know, he didn't really. Uh, have time for you and he let you know it that uh, uh if you didn't pick it up then you're gonna be left behind or, or shipped out what, I'm, I'm curious Jax, what did, what was the biggest lesson that you learned from him like you, you mentioned he taught you a lot about work ethic was there anything in particular maybe it was a drill maybe it was something fundamentally or uh, a tricks of the trade that a veteran knew that as a young player you weren't aware of what is there anything in particular that he left you with when you, you were playing with him well, you just do anything to win. Uh, he, he didn't care about confrontation. He didn't care about uh, uh, going to battles. He, he just showed no respect for any uh, uh, opponent, no matter who it was. If it was uh, Steve Eisenman or Chris Chelios or, uh, you know, a rookie, he, he played the same way against everybody. Uh, he was never an eye. He, he never uh, cut corners. And, uh, you know, I tried to do that, too. You know, if you have to play dirty to, to win the puck battle, you do it. And, and Prongs was uh, was pretty good at that uh, aspect of the game as well. So, Jax, I, I would imagine, and we've talked about this in the past, I mean, coming out of British Columbia, I'm not sure if you knew a whole lot about the city of St. Louis and the Blues as a hockey team. But w- but when you're young coming up through hockey, do you know a lot about individual players? Like, like are you lo- are you looking at what Chris Pronger is doing and what Al McKinnis is doing and thinking, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, just kind of my, uh, you know, geographical uh, reference was kind of between uh, uh, Calgary and Vancouver, and uh, the Oilers were big in the 80s when I was growing up, so uh, I watched those three teams a lot, so I got to watch Al play, and uh, and then kind of followed his career, uh, you know, to uh, to St. Louis and, and loved watching him, and then obviously Pronger was one of the best uh you know, Canadian-born uh, defenseman ever played the game, so uh, I love watching him too. So, yeah, I didn't know a lot about uh, the city of St. Louis, but just being able to get uh, a few games and you know the hockey news uh, growing up, uh, uh, reading that and all the articles about uh, how good the Blues were, it was uh, uh, it was pretty easy to track. Uh, you know, some of the the greatest players to ever uh, ever play the game. Bear Jackman is our guest for another couple of minutes, wrapping up last night's Chris Pronger induction into the uh, the Blues' number going up into the rafters. Jackman was on hand for that ceremony. Uh, Jax, I, I did want to ask you, is it, do you have a favorite Chris Pronger story, whether it was on ice or off ice, something that just it comes to the back of your mind's eye as you're thinking about that the time that you spent with Prongs and being teammates together? Uh, you know, just, just everything about him. Uh, you know, he, he was, he was fun to be around in the dressing room. He's, uh, you know, he's demanding on the young guys, but he's also uh, a kid at heart. So, uh, he liked to mess around. He, he liked to have a good time. Uh, you know, he loved being part of the, uh, the ribbing and, uh, but he, he just always had a great presence, uh, you know, kind of bigger than life. Uh, you know, intense, but also uh, a little childish too. So, uh, just him being around the room and uh, the way he interacted with the uh, reporters was awesome too. Uh, you know, there was no uh, 
uh, no hiding his feelings, whether it was a, uh, you know, a really bad question or a, or a terrible question. He, uh, he let people hear it. Yeah. I'm very glad I didn't suffer from that. I didn't have to cover that Jax because I would have, uh, I would have crumbled if Chris Pronger would have called me out on that one. Uh, you, you know, what I am curious about too, is when, when you're playing with the blues and you're in that locker room with him, Jax, for, for the first five or six years of your career, what was that like when he left? Because, I mean, he was the voice of that locker room and, and you guys growing up and players talk about it all the time. You know, when a player moves on from free agency or, or a trade, it's the next man up mentality. But did that feel like a massive hole when Pronger was gone and when, when McKennis was gone? Yeah, those were, uh, you know, when you take out uh, half the minutes in the back end, uh, uh, it was pretty tough to, uh, for anybody, you know, even, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, barrage of six, seven, eight guys, uh, you, you couldn't uh, really replace what those guys brought. Um, so it was tough uh, for a couple of years. I know, uh, you know, the trade for, uh, for Eric Brewer and, you know, he kind of got the, uh, uh, the Pronger Shanahan, uh, uh, you know, welcome in St. Louis. And, uh, so it was hard for him to, you know, even come close to what, uh, you know, Prongs brought. But uh, so we try to do it as a, as a group. And, um, you know, you see how good Prongs was no matter where he went. He was going to the finals and uh, he just made every team that much better. No matter what he had around him, he, uh, he elevated everybody. So uh, it was tough. And we had, you know, the lean years after the lockout when he left and, um, you know, we just try to, to build with character and, uh, you know, and uh, a little bit of skill. And But, uh, you know, the, the teachings of, of Prongs and Al, uh, you know, were passed along. And eventually, uh, you know, Blues uh, won a cup, but it took a long time. Yeah, well, it was an awesome ceremony last night, and I'm glad you were a part of it on the Ice Jacks. Thank you so much for taking some time out today, man. Uh, hope to catch up with you again real soon and uh, enjoy the rest of the week. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. There you go. Barrett Jackman, Blues defenseman with us. And that's the part that fascinates me because we've seen it. I mean, look at what happened with BK with with Alex Petrangelo leaving. Like, you got a captain who's been here for five, six, seven years. I mean, you're talking about a guy who was with the Blues for nine seasons. He wins an MVP. He wins Norris trophies. He goes probably on one of the longest runs of the Blues team in nearly 30 years. And then all of a sudden he's gone. And you're taking him in McKennis out of that locker room and you're looking around going, okay, we got some big shoes to fill right now. There's a reason why they went into a rebuild shortly thereafter. It was um, a competitive <laughs> rebuild. No, 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 it no, really it wasn't. wasn't. No, it really wasn't. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Mike Keenan, former Blues head coach and general manager, will join us coming up at 12 o'clock. I want to ask him about the behind the scenes that went into that infamous trade that ended up bringing Chris Pronger here to St. Louis. What went into that decision? How did he get to that decision? We'll ask Mike Keenan coming up at the top of the hour. But next, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line for questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. Let's start out with this one from the 314. Hey guys, looking at next week, which number one seed is more likely to lose in the second round of the playoffs, the Packers or the Titans? 
according to Vegas, they view the Titans as being more likely. The Titans are a three-and-a-half-point home favorite against the Bengals, and the Packers are a six-point home favorite against the 49ers. That one seems a little high to me. I'm picking the Packers to beat the 49ers. Six points seems like a lot. Yeah, I think uh, there's no scenario that I see Green Bay losing, even despite playing the hot team right now, San Francisco. Titans, I really don't see losing either. But, man, if they if they can't find a solution for Jamar Chase and Higgins and Boyd with Burrow, I, I, I would say the Titans are the more likely team to lose. Yeah, I think Titans are more likely to lose because the defense hasn't been that impressive this year. Like you said, if they can't find a way to stop Chase, Bengals offense is explosive enough. I do think San Francisco has a shot, though, to take down Green Bay because they can control the game with their running game. And Jimmy G played well last week, but apparently he's got another injury that's popped up with a shoulder. So I just can't stay healthy. I think I would take that the Bengals would beat the Titans, but I would keep an eye on the 49ers on Green Bay. 49ers played well against them earlier this year. Lost yeah. that game by two points. It was close. I, I think that the Bengals are the more likely team to win outright than the 49ers, but I think people are underestimating the Titans. Oh, yeah. I, I think this has gone a little swung a little bit too far in the direction of the Bengals. I understand that Cincinnati's played really well of late, but it's not as if they dominated the Raiders last week. The, the Raiders, if not for a blown call in the end zone, they were pretty darn close to being right in that game. And they still had a chance there at the very end to be, at least be able to tie it. And I think they should have gone for two if they were uh, if they ended up scoring there to potentially win. I don't know, man. I think we've we've gotten a little out over our skis on what Cincinnati has done. I think they're a good team. They're a fun team. But I think this is kind of like the Bills the last couple of years where we're watching the beginning of what's going to be a very good team in the AFC for years to come because of Joe Burrow. I, I don't think they're ready just yet. So I, I'm going to take the Titans in that one straight up. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if if the Titans just run just run away with that, especially if Derrick Henry is any shade of himself. I, I don't know how Cincinnati or any team is going to be able to stop that run. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers. Guys, how much do you trust Ville Husso? And if he's starting in net for you into the playoffs, does that cap the ceiling for the Blues? I'm a little confused by the question. Cap the ceiling. Do you think that the Blues are able to win a cup with Ville Husso as a oh, starter? Okay, thank you. That's easier. Um, it's okay. I don't know a lot of vocabulary either. Look, I, I mean, I, I think it's very possible that the Blues could win the cup with Ville Husso, but I think it's more likely they win it with Jordan Bennington. Let's not forget that Ville Husso was the guy. Like T Bone, we were talking about that in the commercial break, and you brought it up. Like, Ville Husso was supposed to be the Jordan Bennington in 2018-2019. He was injured. They went to Jordan Bennington and said, and the rest is history. I think Ville Husso is more than capable of taking this team on a long run. But I don't think it's going to be now. I think now Jordan Bennington is your number one guy and Ville Husso is your backup. If Ville, if Jordan Bennington opens up the playoff first round and struggles in the first two games and gives up six goals and looks like he can't stop anything... Then you go to Ville Husso. And guess what? If Ville wins you that series, Ville is going to keep playing. But he's not going to be the one that you go to in game one of the first round of the playoffs. Jordan Bennington will be that guy. And Jordan Bennington will have a long leash in that playoff. I think the Blues can win a Stanley Cup with Ville Husso. Now, with that being said, I do believe that Jordan Bennington is that number one guy that they would turn to in the playoffs to at least start things until the scenario plays out that Alex said, where if he gives up three goals and back-to-back games and he looks like he's really struggling then they would turn to Ville Husso. I'm just a believer if any goalie can get hot at the right time, they can win a Stanley Cup. And Ville Husso has proven he can go on a stretch like he is now where he can have 10 games where he's playing at an unbelievable level. 
It's so hard because I'm I'm the numbers guy, right? I'm the nerd that uses those. And based on the numbers, I should be saying clearly Ville Husso is not just he's not going to cap the ceiling because he's been better this year. Objectively, by the numbers, he's been better. I just believe that their ceiling is higher with Jordan Bennington. And I I don't know that what I'm doing is fair to Ville Husso. I'm going to say that. I, I want to make that very clear. But I think Jordan Bennington's your guy. And you've got to trust him. And if you go into the playoffs and he's he proves that you're wrong, I think that begs more questions about the future than it does for right now. I, I think for 2022... Your ceiling is where does Jordan Bennington take you? And that's as far as you're going to ultimately go. So they need him to get right eventually. At some point over the next really two months or so, they need Bennington be, to be at his peak form. And if he's not able to get there, then I, I don't think this team's going to be able to win a Stanley Cup. And that that's no shot at who. So I just think that's kind of the reality of where they're at right now. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in 15 minutes, is the Cliff and Kyler experiment already over in Arizona? It's crazy to be saying that after just a couple of seasons, but last night was inexcusable. We'll talk about that coming up at 1215. Next, Mike Keenan, former Blues head coach and general manager. He was the one that traded for Chris Pronger. What went into that decision? I'll have him take us behind the scenes coming up next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It is BK and Ferrario here on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN. A night after the Blues defeat the Nashville Predators. A night after Chris Pronger's number 44 went into the rafters at Enterprise Center. Along with Brandon Kiley and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Alex Ferrario as we head to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. And welcome in a former head coach, former general manager for three seasons with the St. Louis Blues. He was the man that traded Brendan Shanahan for Chris Pronger back in July of 1995. He is Mike Keenan. Mike, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day today. How are you? I'm doing really well. I appreciate you having me on. Well, definitely. We had to get the guy who was the one that saw something in Chris Pronger to trade Brendan Shanahan for him. Mike, take me back to that offseason when you made that trade. What did you see in a young Chris Pronger that made you want to trade Brendan Shanahan? Well, we did a lot of research and in terms of knowing Chris. Uh, fortunately for myself, I had coached in Peterborough where Chris played and had a lot of resources about Chris and his ability, his ability certainly to play the game, to see the game and his competitiveness. And the seven-year difference in terms of Brendan and Chris uh, came into play as well and the financial impact on the Blues organization at the same time. So uh, I knew and I expected to see a, a superstar player eventually. I didn't think it would happen that quickly, but uh, we really did a lot of homework and, and found out that uh, Chris was a special player. Mike, can you take us back into the rooms where you were having the conversations with the people that you trusted hockey-wise? What what did people say when you initially said, hey, we might trade Shani for Pronger? What, what, was, what were those conversations like? Well, the first thing was that uh, we we sought out again and, and evaluated Chris's ability. The, the first thing that came to the surface for everyone was his hockey intellect, his ability to play the game, to see the game, and then the competitiveness in him, and the, of course his size and the position. He was a defenseman, and Brendan was a forward. So 
when you could anchor a, a team like that, and I had the experience previously in Chicago when I also traded an extremely popular player and a good player, Dennis Savard for Chris Chelios. And when Ch- Chris Chelios arrived, the dynamics of the team and the culture of the team completely changed in a, in a positive sense. Uh, here's a guy that could play over 30 minutes at the time. And the same impact when, when Chris Pronger evolved into the player he became, uh, it really had a lot uh, of uh, implications in terms of changing the dynamics of the game for the St. Louis Blues and also uh, the skill set that he would bring. Partner with Al McGinnis, Al helped him a lot as a young player. I'm sure he would acknowledge that. But it was the, the hockey intellect, the hockey sense, uh, the competitiveness, the size, and the position that made this very possible for us to make that trade. Uh, Mike, you mentioned it, and I mean, you're no stranger to unpopular trades with something like this. When you make a trade, especially when it's a young player like a Chris Pronger, and you know the potential is there and you're trading away a fan favorite, how difficult is it as a coach, front office member, to sit there and just tell people, like, be patient with this, because I promise you this guy's going to be something. Yeah, I had, again, I'll go back to the experience I had in Chicago uh, when Chris Chelios arrived. They were booing me, and, and as was the case in St. Louis, the fans were booing me for making that trade. And, and all of a sudden, they were cheering because they saw how good Chris Chelios was. And, and the same thing happened in St. Louis. All of a sudden, they saw, wow, this guy's unbelievable. He's a great player. So uh, we had to, to bear with some of the, the, the fallout, but uh, eventually... And uh, importantly, uh, the players responded. Uh, Chris Chelios and Chris Pronger did not get thrown off their game because of the, the, the pressures and the booing and, and what went on. And, of course, uh, uh, having those types of players impact your team so, so much in terms of determination and character. So, uh, yeah, it was a little bit of a... A crazy process, but one that was very important to the franchise in both Chicago and in St. Louis. Former Blues head coach and general manager Mike Keenan joining us here on BK and Ferrario. Uh, Mike, we know you, you were intense as a coach, and we've talked to a lot of Chris Pronger's former teammates, some guys that played against and with him. He was certainly an intense uh, player as well. What was that dynamic like between the two of you once he did get here into St. Louis? Were there moments where, I mean, both of you guys with your competitive fire, it, it got a little interesting between the two of you? Not really, but I uh, expected a lot from him. Uh, I knew the the impact that uh, the trade had made in the in the organization and the city in particular, and I leaned on Chris quite a bit, uh, not in a controversial way, in a private way. I had meetings with him. Uh, away from the the ice surface and helped to try to build his confidence. He was a very young player uh, and also bring out the best in him. So it worked out well. Like I said, he responded to the situation. I think it was difficult for him at first, but uh, he took it in stride. And as, as you know, he just became a complete player and such an important player for the St. Louis Blues. Mike, when you make the decision as a coach to award a player a a letter, especially when you're a captain, like a lot goes into that decision, I'm assuming. But when you looked at that roster at the time in 97-98, and you had so many veteran players on the roster, you know, Brett Hall was there, Al McKinnis was there, 
What went into the decision to name a 23-year-old Chris Pronger to be captain? Well, I think that uh, again he 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 evolved into the into the leadership role and had command and respect of the players, and that's his doing. That was his character. That was Chris Pronger. He had a presence. So when you make those decisions, you evaluate what's really going on, the dynamics of the group and the team, and uh, then you make those decisions to to find the leadership that you're looking for, and certainly we could find that in Chris Pronger. Mike, when you look back at, at Chris Pronger's career, the, the season that jumps out to everybody, of course, is the 99-2000 season. I know you weren't the head coach here uh, during that season, but uh, watching that from afar, as you see him become the first player to win both the Hart and the Norris Trophy in one season since Bobby Orr. I mean, it had been 40 years at that point since anybody had done it. Uh, did you know he had that kind of potential? You really don't know for sure, but uh, we, as I said early in this conversation, we suspected that he could do uh, and elevate his game to that level. And, of course, uh, there's no greater accolade that you could give him to say that he's now in the same, in the same sphere as Bobby Orr because, as you know, Bobby Orr is the, one of the greatest and not the greatest defensemen. So for Chris to win the Norris as the MVP of the league, I'm, I'm sorry, a, a defenseman, and then the Hart Trophy as the MVP of the league uh, was, you know, uh, I was I was disappointed I couldn't have shared it with him, but I was really, really pleased for him and pleased for the Blues. What did you notice, Mike, about the evolution of Pronger's career? Because you were still around the National Hockey League even after your time in St. Louis with Vancouver and Boston and Florida and Calgary. And throughout that time, Chris Pronger not only continued to evolve in the best defenseman in the NHL, but you saw him go on to take an Edmonton Oilers team to the Stanley Cup final and then win the Stanley Cup with the Anaheim Ducks. What stuck out to you about the evolution of his career? Well, it was just the poise and the confidence and, of course, uh, his meanness, uh, was always uh, on display on the ice surface. Off the ice, he was actually a, a quite a funny guy at times, but um, you could see that he took charge. He, he took command of the team uh, and, and put the team on his back. He was a consummate pro, a leader, and his skill set was the best in the league at that position. So uh, it wasn't a surprise. But as a lot of players, you have to maybe go to the finals and, and lose to learn how to win and, and, and to excel and find the ingredients of what it takes as a group to win the Stanley Cup. Uh, so I think that was the evolution that I witnessed was his maturity, and his presence, his leadership, and his command of the game and of his team. And of his team. <laughs> Excuse me. No worries, Mike. Mike, final question that I've got for you. We're talking to the former Blues head coach and general manager, Mike Keenan, here on 101 ESPN. When you look back at your time here in St. Louis, I've never been able to ask you this question before, but I'm sure our audience would be curious. How do you remember that time here in St. Louis? What's your, your lasting memory of, of being here and being in charge of the hockey operations? Well, I think that uh, I can take pride in the fact that we assembled a great team and as Wayne Gretzky said, uh, you know, and all due respect to John Casey, who played his heart out for us, he wasn't Gretz here. And Gretz said, if 
Grant was in the net, we would have won the Stanley Cup back then. So, you know, we had assembled a great group of players over time. And uh, I was very proud of that, as was the case in the development of teams prior to that that I'd coached. Um, I think that uh, it was never appreciated, but uh, it came to fruition. And, you know, to make a trade for the greatest player in the game and, and so on, and Chris Blonger and others, and Alba Dimitra was a, was a gift to us. Uh, I mean, I go on the roster, but uh, the loss of Grant Fuhr really changed probably the outcome of my career. Mike, final one for me. And I know you had a hockey podcast a couple of years ago with uh, with the uh, the sporting news. And I know you've been coaching around the National Hockey League, and then, and of course, in the KHL. How much of of hockey are you watching to this day? Because I'm curious your thoughts on this Blues team. If you've paid any attention to them, uh, I haven't watched as much as I used to. Um, but Craig Groovy, I coached, and I know his leadership skills and his ability to coach. Uh, it's funny that when I was working for NBC, uh, we talked about Craig Brewery being a head coach again after uh, he was out of that position and then going to St. Louis. And we recognized that he would be an outstanding coach uh, from the broadcast group. And Mike Melberry was a coach, and I was on the broadcast with him. And, and Keith Jones knew him well, and he was on the broadcast, and Jeremy Roenick. We all said, Craig Bruby's got the skill set to lead a team to the Stanley Cup, and that proved out to be right. He's Mike Keenan, former Blues head coach and general manager. Mike, we appreciate the time. Thank you so much for joining us today, and hopefully we'll talk with you again soon. I appreciate it. Thank you, and good luck to the Blues. I mean, they're still you know, right up there amongst the best teams in the league, so stay healthy and injury-free, and you've got a shot. Yeah, thanks, Absolutely. Mike. That's Mike Keenan joining us here on 101 ESPN. Appreciate him giving us a little bit of time today after Chris Pronger's number went up into the Raptors last night. The ceremony held at Enterprise Center. I do find it interesting. Listen, I, I, I understand there's a lot of people on the text line that, that are saying what you would expect, right? I, I know J- Jamie, we have talked with him a million <laughs> different times about his experiences with Mike Keenan, and not all of them were particularly pleasant, to say the least. And I, I understand what the legacy is with Mike Keenan here in St. Louis. I'm going to set that aside for just a moment, if we can. In terms of hockey trades, doesn't get a whole lot better in terms of a two-year stretch than trading for Al McKinnis and trading for Chris Pronger. Like, there were a lot of issues that are totally understandable that people have with Keenan, especially as a head coach and the way that all of that went in his time here in St. Louis. I get all of that. But if I setting that aside again, which is hard to do, if we're just talking about transactions, I mean, he traded for two Hall of Fame defensemen and two Hall of Fame defensemen, rather, in a two-year stretch here in St. Louis that changed the trajectory of the Blues franchise yeah. for the next fifteen years. That, that's a pretty wild thing to be able to say. Yeah, look, I mean, nobody's going to deny that he is not liked here in St. Louis. One hundred percent, and and I understand everyone like nobody should give him the airtime. He's arrogant. I, one, I think it's fascinating to get the perspective of somebody else. And look, Mike Keenan might have a completely different view of actually what happened if you ask the players in the locker room. But you get his perspective on what went into that trade. But on top of it, you're right, BK. I I mean, look, I'm not giving the man any credit because, I mean, a lot of things went wrong in his time here in St. Louis. But think about it. I mean, you mentioned Pronger. You mentioned McKennis. On top of it, he was able to be a part of the the group that got Wayne Gretzky. Ron Caron was a part of this as well. You were able to get Wayne Gretzky here. You were able to acquire Pavel Dimitra at that time. So, I mean, that was a hell of a roster 
um, despite things going wrong. And again, so many uh, negative texts towards him. We understand this. We're not we're not promoting Mike Keenan. We're not Mike Keenan fans here. But we're getting the perspective from yeah. somebody else in the decision. And look, the guy isn't here if it's not for that trade of Brendan Shanahan. I wanted to know what his perspective was on one of the most unpopular Blues trades of the last 30 years. And then watching <laughs> him, like, like, you acquired the guy. And look at Chris Pronger's numbers. The first couple of years here in St. Louis... They weren't great. And Pronger even addressed it in his Hall of Fame speech. Like, he was booed an awful lot. He was a he, minus. He mentioned it no fewer than 20 times I know. last night. He was a <laughs> minus 18 in the first year that he was here. Could you imagine trading a guy who had over 200 goals in St. Louis, was a fan favorite, and then the guy you brought in was a minus 18 in his first season? Is there an equivalent to Shani today? Like, I'm trying to think of for, for people that weren't around at that point, I mean, f- frankly, for myself, is, is there an equivalent, like, the Blues? traded player why today for a young defenseman that was completely unproven to give us an example of what that might have felt like would it be like trading vladdy if he didn't have the i I don't know the tough part he wasn't the fan favorite here's the thing too with brendan shanahan brendan shanahan looked like a hall of famer when he was in st louis and i mean he was only in year like five or six of his career like he looked like he was headed to the hall of fame for how he was playing i don't really know if there is a good comp because vladdy was a sniper brendan shanahan was nasty like he went to the he was Chris Pronger as a forward he would go to the front of the net I mean he was prime Keith Kachuk when Keith Kachuk was in Arizona he would go to the front of the net he would stand in front of the net he would pound people to the ground and he would just be a pain in the ass to deal with in some ways it it's not a one-for-one because they're very different players obviously but in some ways it's almost like trading Ryan O'Reilly right now for a completely unproven defenseman that they think has untapped potential because they view the defense as being the weak spot for them right yeah. now. Um, it, it's obviously not one you for just, one, but that's just, probably the closest comparison that you could make you, right now. You just don't make trades like that anymore. Like You just don't see hockey trades like that anymore, especially in the offseason where you got a, a... And again, remember the finances at the time. Like The Blues were up for sale, and they had to get rid of a lot of stuff, and they offset a money maker that was going to be Brennan Shanahan, and you bring in a 20-year-old defenseman that you're saying, look, this guy's... I mean, Brian... Uh, Brian Burke, I think uh, Brian. No, it's Brian Burke. He's the he was the GM of the Hartford Whalers at the time. They made a insane trade to trade up to the number two spot to get Chris Pronger. So uh, again, he, he sucks in so many people's minds. But I appreciate him coming on and giving his side of the story because I think it's fascinating to find out what went into that decision. Coming up in 10 minutes, we're going to talk to Danny Mack, Cardinals broadcaster for Bally Sports Midwest. He was around the Blues in the early 2000s when Chris Pronger was at the peak of his powers. We'll talk to Danny Mack about what that time was like to be covering the Blues coming up at 1230. But next, is the Cliff and Kyler experiment already over for Arizona? I don't know that they're going to make that decision. I think they probably should, though. We'll talk about why coming up on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Murray with time. Pops, pressures, collapsing, flips it out into the open field. It's intercepted. David Long Jr. scoops it up and takes it in. The Los Angeles Rams are moving on in the NFL playoffs. It was a massive failure. I mean, from what we were capable of doing and from what we 
showed we can do to, to, what, to today, there's no other way to describe it than as a failure. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. That audio courtesy of Westwood Watt and J.J. Watt after the game last night talking about how this season was a failure for the Arizona Cardinals. And we're not going to talk about the Rams a whole lot. We'll talk about them it as the week goes on. Watch no, it wasn't enjoyable no, for you. For the rest of our audience, maybe it. not so much. Hated it. It's okay, text line. The Cardinals have now done this. Each of the three seasons under Cliff Kingsbury, where they start out the year hot and then they fade down the stretch. In 2019, they lost seven of their last nine. In 2020, lost five of their last seven. This year, lost five of their last six. And this is something that dates all the way back to his time at Texas Tech. 2018, lost all of his last five games. 2017, lost six of eight. Same thing in 2016, lost four of six and 14 and 15 and lost five of six in 2013. For whatever reason, Cliff Kingsbury's teams start out hot and then they fade in a big way down the stretch. Guys, last night, Kyler Murray looked scared. He looked like he was completely unprepared for a big moment against a quality opponent. I thought they would be completely ready for that game. And after what they had done the previous few weeks down the stretch, I thought, okay, they've got something that's ready to go for this playoff game against the Rams. They had no answers, none. Defensively, they had no answers for Cam Akers and the speed that he brought to the backfield for the Rams. Offensively, they were inept. That was one of the worst offensive performances that I saw this week, maybe the worst. And I watched the Steelers play football for 60 minutes this week. They looked good for 10 minutes until TKO over here. If I'm the Arizona Cardinals owner today, I'm going to my front office. I'm talking to all of my trusted people that are around me. And I'm saying, do we really think that there is more here with Cliff Kingsbury as our coach? And honestly, I think the answer is no. I think you got to make the move. And I don't say that half-heartedly. I understand that Cliff has done some good things with Kyler. But I need to find out what Kyler Murray is. And if he is my future at the quarterback position. And right now, I don't think Cliff and Kyler is the answer. So i got to find out if Cliff's the problem if Kyler's the problem or if both are the problem, the only way to do that is to get a new coach in there. I, I understand the cliff part and I'm with you, but I'm moving on from the Kyler part too. I think I saw all I needed to this see. With, yeah. I think I saw all I needed to see with Kyler. Wow. You I, would get a King's ransom. I, I'm out on him. I, I mean, it, like, like, I Parker. understand. I understand the, the, the prep side of things on the Kingsbury and you're right on that. But I saw a quarterback who couldn't handle the pressure. I saw a quarterback who got frustrated at his teammates when he was the one that was throwing random balls in the end zone just up in the air Mm. for somebody to pick off. Like, that's not Kingsbury. That's a bad decision on your quarterback. And we've seen that multiple seasons from him. Can he run the ball? Absolutely. Does he have a cannon? Definitely. But I don't know if he is a number one quarterback for a team. He's better than Jalen Hurts. Well, yeah, but he's not better than like a Lamar Jackson or things like that. I just don't think he's a good enough leader for a Super Bowl. I agree. The leadership thing is something that I'm curious about moving forward because I brought this up when we were having our pre-show meeting is every time I see the Cardinals losing and there's a shot of Kyler Murray, it's usually nothing that I look at and go, man, that's a leader right there. He's always got his head down where he just walks slowly to the bench. And usually I see quarterbacks. Usually I see quarterbacks walking up and down the sidelines whether saying that's on me or hey, we still got this. I haven't seen that from Kyler. I don't know if I move on from either or yet just this offseason. Let's not forget a key piece of that offense was out last night and missed a significant amount of time and they showed the numbers on the game last night, and that's DeAndre Hopkins. They were eight and two with him, and I think they were like one and five without him or one and six without him. So now, does he make that much of a difference to where they don't, aren't embarrassed like that last night? 
I don't know, but it's enough for me to say, okay, let's run it back with Cliff one more time. Let's run it back with Kyler one more time. We're going to have Hopkins back. I think Green will be back, if I'm not mistaken, too. They've got Zach Ertz on the roster. I think there's pieces there that can still win with it. And I understand the struggles with Kingsbury, but he was missing his number one wideout and a significant number one wideout at that. So I'd run it back one more time. They struggle next year, second half of the year. Then it's time to move on. Maybe not from both, but from at least from Kingsbury. I mean, I watched the Green Bay Packers without their number one weapon go into Arizona and beat the Cardinals. So I can't blame this all on you not having a receiver. If that's the downfall of your organization for a playoff game and they look completely incompetent, it's one thing to be bad. To to look as poor as the Cardinals did last night, that's not because they were missing yeah, one guy. The other difference for me, though, is Aaron Rodgers is a elite number one quarterback in the NFL. I'm not saying Kyler Murray's a bad quarterback, but he's one of those quarterbacks that has to have his weapon with him to have success. And that's not well, that's just not on, a good quarterback, then. That's not on Kyler Murray, but you're not going to get much better than Kyler Murray. Like, I don't see an upgrade this offseason to where I say, okay, that's the move that you're going to get. But here's the difference, though. The, top. the Tennessee Titans don't have A.J. Brown, Julio Jones, Derrick Henry. They're still winning football games. And that's what Ryan Tannehill knew, who none of us agree is a top five to seven quarterback. You take out Devontae Adams, you take out Lazard, you talk about um, who's there? Valdez. Thank you. You take out those three, and then you take out their running back. They're still winning football games. Like Kyler Murray, you take out one piece of the puzzle. They still had the weapons that were good in the early portion of the season. You take out one weapon. And the guy is still fumbling in the backfield. The guy couldn't get past the 20-yard line. Yeah, I, I'm not moving on from Kyler Murray. I, I don't think that he is a top-five quarterback. I wouldn't even put him in my top-10 right now, but I think he's a top-20, top-15 guy. Like He's he's in that same range. He, does, he goes about it differently, but he's in that same range to me as a Kirk Cousins, Derek Carr, Matt Ryan, any, any of those guys in that middle tier that are are fine, and you can win with them if you've got a great team around them. I think that's where Kyler is is firmly situated right now. So I'm not moving on from him yet. He's still cheap. He's still young. He's still cost-controlled. So I, I'm keeping him. I, I can't keep Cliff Kingsbury, though. I've got to find out if there's other coaches that can do more with the talent that's currently assembled. I was listening to a podcast last night, though, and they brought up an interesting point, guys. If I had you name the top five players on the Arizona Cardinals— We can all agree Kyler's on that list. We can all agree when healthy, you're going to have DeAndre Hopkins on that list. The guy that got hurt last night, and it sounds like Buda's doing better, uh, Buda Baker is going to be one of them. After you get to like the fourth and fifth guys, Chandler Jones is certainly on this list. It starts getting pretty difficult. Like, who is the fifth best player that you're building around on the Arizona Cardinals? Honestly, I mean, James Conner looked the part this season. But if you're if we're talking about your fifth best player, the guy that you're building around is your running back that signed, I think, on a one year deal, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. If that's where we're at, this roster is in a bad place as well. They've just had too many different pieces that were put in place that are stop gaps. Right now, you're looking at uh, Christian Kirk is a free agent this offseason. A.J. Green is a stopgap. He's not a future answer for you at wide receiver. J.J. Watt, stopgap for you. Uh, Marcus Golden, love the guy. That's a stopgap as your answer at, at defensive end. They just don't. Rodney Hudson, same thing on the offensive line. They have not drafted very well. And the result is you're watching a team that they've got to find these pieces in the offseason that some of them fit. A lot of them don't. That's another thing they've got to get figured out as well. They got to start drafting better to acquire more talent to put around Kyler and just the team as a whole. So I'd be moving on from Cliff Kingsbury. I'd consider moving on from my general manager because if that's a talent problem, 
there's a guy that's in charge of drafting that talent for you. He clearly hasn't done a very good job. And he's been there for a long time, too, because mm-hmm. he was back when they had Palmer. He may have even been the GM when they had Warner. I don't know if he goes back that far, but he's been there quite a while. He's been there since, uh, what's his face, the Bucks coach right now. He, he was there. Yeah, yeah, he was there right. with Bruce Arians. I don't know if it matters to coach. Time. For me, I, I mean, I don't see a Kyler Murray run team getting past the first round of the playoffs. Unless you put some superstars around him. But even then, I, he, he, he looked like what Josh Allen looked like in his first playoff game. But the difference is Josh Allen continued to improve every season. And Kyler Murray has just been the same. He has been so far. And I think a lot of that just comes down to the hits that he takes over the course of the season. And by the end of the year, he's a shell of himself. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big part of this as well. In 15 minutes, we're diving into the junk drawer. But coming up next, Deany Mack joins the show. I've got a Cardinals hypothetical trade question for him. We'll do that next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. That's Alex Ferrario. He's Tanner Hendrickson, also known as T-Bone. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Always happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by our friend, the Cardinals broadcaster for Valley Sports Midwest. He is Dan McLaughlin, Danny Mack, here on 101 ESPN. Dan, what's up, man? How you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you guys? Uh, doing pretty well. So I wanted to first get your thoughts on what was a pretty cool night last night at Enterprise Center as Chris Pronger's number gets retired up into the rafters. You were around the team at the time that Prongs was at the top of his game, Dan. What was that night like for you, and what are some of your lasting memories of watching Chris Pronger dominate early on in his career here in St. Louis? Well, I, I was fortunate to have a front row seat and uh, watch him <clears throat> turn into the, the Hall of Famer that he became. And I was there when he first got to St. Louis, and uh, the trade, as it was mentioned last night, was extremely, and I mean extremely, unpopular. I mean, you're talking about a guy in Brendan Shanahan who was an established star. He was popular in the community. He was one of the most popular, if not the most popular, blue with Brett Hall. And then all of a sudden they trade for this kid, Chris Pronger, who was not seeing his promise uh, come to fruition as a number two overall pick by Hartford. And so to see him come to St. Louis and to watch him grow up, and we're about the same age, so we would hang out every once in a while, you might imagine, after games and and have a little fun. So I got to know him in that regard, too. Um, It was great. I I was just so happy for him and his wife and his family. Uh, He's he's made St. Louis home. He's invested in the community. And the, the, the couple things I thought last night, Number one, Al McKinnis did a great job in what he said and saying that he might be the best defenseman that's ever played the game. That caught my attention. Uh, it was, for me, watching him in his MVP Norris Trophy season, I, I've said this many times, it's the most dominant hockey season of a player I've ever seen, ever. It was unbelievable how much he controlled the ice. He was on the ice. He averaged guys over 30 minutes a game. And then the other thing I thought about when I saw Al and then go to Chris is how did they not win a Stanley Cup? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you had those two guys, and I've thought that for a long time, when you had those two guys on the ice for the better part of 60 minutes and dominating, and they were, both were dominating. Uh, Al does not get enough credit for just how good he was defensively. He was a terrific defensive player, but everybody talks about the slap shot and what that was like. But both guys were on the ice, and they dominated play. Um, you have to have a lot of things go in your favor to win a cup. I get that. But, man, to have those two guys there and not win it, especially the President's Trophy year, uh, was kind of shocking to me. But it was 
it was great to see. And, and it was, I thought his speech was great. It was lighthearted. It represented who he is, him slamming a beer, having fun with the crowd, all that stuff. I mean, that is Chris Pronger in a nutshell. And uh, now he'll be forever immortalized in the uh, the rafters of, of Enterprise Center. So I, I thought it was a great night. And the, the Blues production team, once again, did an incredible job with that, too. So it was just really cool to see. Dan, real quick, one more question on Pronger. At what point in his career did you see him and say, this guy is going to be a Hall of Famer? Well, certainly that year that he won the MVP and, and the Norris, I thought, okay, if he can stay healthy, this is, a, this is an MVP type player every single year. And if he can have longevity in the game, um, he's headed to the Hall of Fame. When he first got here, you got to remember, too, and it, it's kind of I, – I know this is apples and oranges, but it's kind of like when you draft in the international draft in baseball and you're just taking a flyer on a guy and you see some of the peripheral things that you think could be really good player, but he's got to grow into his body. Chris Pronger had to grow into his body. Um, I don't think enough people talk about that. Like he was tall and gangly and yeah, you know, he was strong and strong enough to, to play a full NHL season at early ages, 19 and 20, but he changed his body. And when his habits off the ice changed his training, his eating um, nutrition, that kind of thing, uh, you saw a more dominant player. And I, I think when you started to see that, Alex, I, to me, that's when he began to, to become the player that he was. And and it's not only that. I mean, obviously, you get more experience and you become more used to your surroundings and, and the, the various things that happen as you grow into the league. But physically, his body changed. I mean, he became an absolute menace on the ice. You know, he's six 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 seven with a long reach, and a nasty streak to try to not only, you know, beat you, but hurt you and punish you. You have that combination um, with that God given, uh, you know, physical nature that he had and the body that he was given when it started to change. That's when you started to see him as a player change. And he morphed into this remarkable dominant player. And he was, and, and you would see signs of it. You definitely would see signs of it, but then, it all kind of hit in 99 and 2001 and you're like, Holy smokes, this guy is going to be some kind of player and already is. And obviously it took him all the way to the hall of fame. We're talking to Danny Mack here on 101 ESPN, the Cardinals broadcaster for Bally sports Midwest. Dan, I did want to ask you about the Cardinals. I was reading over on the athletic earlier today and Jim Bowden, the former major league baseball general manager put together basically a Q and a, he had a bunch of, Fans send him possible trade ideas for what their team could do, right? It's a slow time of the year. Welcome to the business. <laughs> um, and one of them that he he got, and I, I thought it was interesting, was a potential Paul DeYoung trade to the Twins for one of their top 100 prospects. Now, the specific player that they had in this mix is, is close to the big leagues. He played a little bit for the Twins last year. But I did want to ask you maybe a little bit more abstract question about this, Dan. If you're the Cardinals and when things open back up again, please open back up soon baseball. But when things open back up, if you're John Moselock, would you consider trading Paul DeYoung in a trade similar to what they did with Matt Adams, where you get a future asset in return? Or is this a situation where you need a a proven major league level commodity if you're going to deal Paul DeYoung, considering he, he is still part of what you're expecting for your opening day roster next year? He's only 28. I, I think people forget that too. He's only 28. He won't turn 29 until August. And 
I flash back to 2019 in which he had the 30 home run season was an all-star and can he get back to that and do it at a price that is so reasonable um, that that makes that a very, very, um, I think, you know, favorable trade ship if that's the direction that you wanted to go. Because a lot of this comes down to, to money and, and dollars and cents. And if you look and you feel as an organization where, you, you know, you're the Cardinals or the Twins or whomever, if you feel like, hey, I, I can get the most out of this guy at the value that he's going to potentially bring at that value with the money, um, I don't know. I, I think it's got to be more than that. Now, I, I understand he's had two down years. I get that. I, I think a lot of it, though, is COVID-related and trying to come back from that in 2020. Last year, I think he maybe rushed himself back after having the, the fracture and didn't go on a rehab assignment, and then you're playing catch-up, and then all of a sudden he got pushed by Sosa. If you look at the combination of those two currently constructed, shortstop position can be fine. Now, if they went out and got Trevor Story, hey, I'd be excited about Trevor Story. If a trade would happen, I could under, I could make the case and say, yeah, I understand why they're doing it. But um, I think there's other areas, though, that if you're, if you're the Cardinals, namely, what am I going to do with my bench, left-handed bat, what does my DH situation look like, which could be Paul DeYoung. And it also comes down to what am I going to do in my bullpen. I, I'm just not sure that this would be front and center on what they want to do. And, again, it's such a club-friendly deal that if you get – just a modicum of the success that he had in, in 2019, it becomes a pretty good value for your club. You mentioned the DH, and this is the final question that I've got for you, Dan. How do you think they view it? Uh, yesterday I was reading Ben Fred. He had a column on how, how they should approach it. He thinks they should go out and get a big-time bat. And Same. I, I've mentioned Nelson Cruz's name a, a million different times. He's the guy that I think makes a ton of sense for this team. But Schwarber. I don't know if they're going to go that route or if they decide to do it as a spot where maybe they get some rest or maybe they platoon the designated hitter. How, how do you think they will or should approach the designated hitter if and when that ends up becoming a thing in the National League? Oh, I think it's when. It's not if. I, I think that'll be one of the, the easy things that in the CBA that they just say, DH, everybody good? Yeah, okay, let's move on to the next thing. So I, I think that's a foregone conclusion. Um, I look at it two ways. I think if you're looking at it from the immediate of 2022, they are a very right-handed hitting club right now, currently constructed. You've got Tommy Edmond as a switch hitter, and you've got Dylan Carlson. And then you look, and the rest of that lineup is right-handed heavy. So if they're going to go out and spend and spend on a bat, I would assume it's going to be a left-handed bat. Now, would I do that? I'm not necessarily sure I would because you do have Lars Newbar, You do have uh, DeYoung potentially. And I understand that one is left, one is right. But that is money that you could then allocate other places. So I could see them going in both ways. But the other thing that you've got to remember, too, is that if you're running the franchise, you're saying, yeah, the first couple of months or maybe even all of 2022 – uh, would I love to have Kyle Schwarber? Of course I would. What's it going to take to get him? Probably a multi-year deal. But I've got Walker coming. I've got Nolan Gorman coming. I've got the potential of Lars Newpar there coming off my bench. I've got Paul DeYoung potentially coming off my bench. Can I get by in the immediate of 2022 with just those guys as opposed to then investing millions of dollars in a multi-year contract on just a hitter? And I'm not sure that's the direction that they're going to go because – if you sit in that seat where Mo is, is at, it, it is about the now. Believe me, you're winning now, but you're also thinking about how are we going to fit all this in moving forward. And that's a good problem to have, and I think it's a problem that they're going to have in a good way uh, probably sooner rather than later. 
He's Danny Mac. You can find him on Twitter at Danny Mac TV. That's where he will be tweeting at me during the Chiefs game this Sunday. I am sure of it. <laughs> Just Dan- calm down, will, will you, BK? <laughs> I appreciate the time as always, my man. We'll talk with you again next week, buddy. Hopefully about a Chiefs win. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. You got it. It's Dan McLaughlin joining us here on 101 ESPN. How do you want them to treat that, Alex? Do you want them to get a designated hitter? Because I... I tend to agree with him in that I, I don't think they're going to go multi-year contract for a DH just because it could potentially clog the lineup a little bit when you look at what Nolan Gorman's future is here. But if you're looking at a one-year deal for uh, maybe it's Nelson Cruz, maybe it's Jock Peterson, somebody in that vein, Jorge Soler, a, a big bat that could come in here, would you like them to go that route or internal for a DH? If it's a one-year deal, I'd rather just go internal. But if you can get multiple guy, or if you can get multiple years, I'd love a Kyle Schwarber because I think that makes you a contender for the here and for the next couple of seasons. But if you're going to go a one-year deal, I know Nelson Cruz is kind of the the goat it's of all of boy. these options. Yeah, I know you, you you swoon over him a lot. Yeah, I, what is there to swoon about a guy that hits thirty home runs and drives in a hundred every well, year? As I'm, as the great T Bone once said, why spend money on him when you got Juan Yepes, who's probably better. <laughs> Amen. It's a high bar to clear considering Nelson Cruz has been a top five hitter in baseball over the last five years. But he needs years. a walker. That's the important thing. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll talk to Jeremy Rutherford, get his thoughts on last night. A cool night over at Enterprise Center. But next, we're going to dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in 10 minutes, we're going to be joined by Jeremy Rutherford, the Blues Insider for 101 ESPN and The Athletic. I've got two primary questions, or three really, primary questions for JR. One, what was it like last night for him as somebody who's been around the Blues for the last 20-plus years and has been covering this team for a long time? What was it like seeing Pronger's number go up into the Raptors? But then on this team specifically... What do the lines look like? Who bu- who drops down to that fourth line when this team is back to being healthy and Buchnevich returns to the lineup? That's one. And two, the Huso conversation. What do you do in net? Does Huso earn more starts right. moving forward? Well, I'll see myself out then. So we'll ask JR coming up in about 10 minutes or so. But right now, let's dive into the junk drawer. And Alex, I wanted to ask you and Tanner this question that I saw on Twitter the other day. You've got two pills going back to the Matrix. Blue the pill. red pill and yes. the blue pill. The red pill... You restart your life at the age of six years old with all of the knowledge that you have right now. You go back 20, what, five years for you? How old are you? Yeah. 25 years. That sucks. (laughs) You're six years old, but you have all of the knowledge that you currently have as a 31 year old. Do I have to? Option B, the blue pill. You get $10 million in cash. Which option would you prefer to have? You kidding me? I'm taking the $10 million in cash. Right now? Look, I, I I miss naps. It's the biggest thing. Oh, dude, you should schedule them. I have a daily nap. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, Slept know. for two hours yesterday when I got home. a child. My daughter has oh, a daily child. nap, and you know oh. what I do during the daily nap? You should nap. Try and get other stuff done oh. around the house. You sleep when she sleeps. That's what yeah, I've always been yeah. told by parents. Did that when she was an actual baby, but <laughs> guess what? The more you sleep when she sleeps, the more dishes pile up and laundries pile up. That's fine. But that $10 million, $10 million could buy some help for that. 
True. So I, I think I'm going to go red pill there. Although I would love to go back to being six. No, I thought it was the blue pill. Red pill is restart your life at the oh. age of six. Blue pill, $10 million you took in the wrong cash. pill. Man, that's go. cool, man. That's, that's tough, though, because I would love to go back to being six years old. But uh, I think I could live a good life with $10 million. So I'm going to take the blue pill. Yeah, I wouldn't mind going back to being six. But that was I, like two I, years ago for 12, you. 12, 12, okay. But I, I think I would. Thank God, you're 18. I think. 22. I, I think I would. I would take the millions of dollars because that would make things a little easier just <laughs> in life as a whole. Sorry, this text got really personal. Saw this on Twitter. The red pill sucks. I'd be explaining crypto to my parents <laughs> yeah. as a six-year-old while they're getting a divorce. 314, if you need to talk, like, we're here for you. So it's interesting because I, I feel like I don't know why you would take the red pill here. That's what I was thinking, too, when I saw this. Is the stipulation in this everything plays out, like sporting events play out? Yeah, everything would have to be the same. So it's like back to the future, so everything is the same. Oh, yeah, Yeah. I'm going back. I'm I'm reversing. We're going red pill here. I'm going to make more than $10 million. You can't I'm going Marty, as a six-year-old. I'm though. going Marty McFly, Back to the Future you can't 2 here. Until you're 21. That's fine. I'll give my dad the money. It, it reminds me. I read the book 112263 from Stephen King, and it's it's kind of that's a good a Back to the Future type of a book, premise. The series was good. It, yeah, it's it, it's a really good book, and it reminds me a little bit of this because the guy goes back in time, and spoiler alert, he's trying to stop the JFK assassination from Dude. taking place. Um, and he has like a log of what all the sporting events were that were taking place and he's got all the winners so he's able to continuously have an income by betting on sports while he goes back in time so i guess that would be helpful but i feel like i'm already an anxious person i would be so unbelievably anxious like we get to 2019 again and i'm like yo you better start wearing a mask things are about to get real weird and i'm telling you right now Utah Jazz, do not let Rudy Gobert touch those microphones. But go back and then you can be like oh hey I'm going to call Pfizer up and tell them, like, hey, get this vaccine ready. And then you're the guy that's everyone talking about. I, see, I, I don't I would not enjoy all of that. that see, I, the problem see, with me, though, because is because you I, get to the place where we are right now. Like you if you took that today and, and then you get to January 18th of 2022. Yeah, you, and you, now everything you've done your entire life, you become a fraud because you're the guy that knew the future. Or you'd become and now the, you can't stop anything anymore. Or you'd be the obnoxious a-hole more than you are now of like, okay. oh, I knew that one was coming this time i do you guys think if you went back and did that do you think you would change something along the way like i think that's the problem i'd be lazy just like i was at six you change one thing and then everything from there on i think i would have tried to go no offense to my juco college but i think i would have tried to go to a university but that would have changed that would have changed a lot because if i don't go to lc I don't meet Ryder. I don't go into radio. I don't know if I'm doing radio if oh. I don't go to LC. Congrats, Mike Ryder. You Shout just got to mention. And Clark That's Ryder. What, I'm so, going somewhere else so after T-Bone I take this pill. <laughs> BK, let's, look, let's get this straight. T-Bone could go back in time, and he could be the Mark Zuckerberg. He could come up with Facebook. Yeah. He could yeah. invest in Apple at the ground. But instead, he up. just wants to make sure that he doesn't go back to JUCO and goes no, 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 to a no, university. I'm just saying, like, is that, that was the example the I have. He, he wouldn't have stopped 9-11. Um, yeah, see, only, that's the other thing about going back one. in time. You have a lot of tasks you got to take care of. Like, why didn't you stop 9-11 before it happened? Yeah, and what are the priorities? You, you've got a family member that passed away from uh, smoking their oh, entire God, lives. Yeah. you got to have and them. You, you know when them. they were going to. Dude, I, this sounds terrible yeah. to me. Like, back I, to the blue pill. <laughs> I would have so much anxiety from something like this. It would not go over well. I, it would end poorly. Give me the $10 million in cash. I'll figure out how to, how to invest. 
invest that, hire a financial advisor that hopefully makes me smarter with my money, and then we can I move forward. But but the good news is we I know don't need T-Bone, problems. T-Bone just doesn't want that to go to JUCO. A, that was just an example, okay? T-Bone wants to meet Ryder in the past, so he's got to make sure that that's on his trajectory. What's worse, if I took that pill, was I would know exactly when I was having my surgeries, too, which is terrifying as well. well like, I know it, the day that my appendix is about to blow up. Only if it lasts for more than four hours. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie, that's a different kind of pill. Coming up in you 15 minutes, we'll play a game Is of bet it or forget it. If you've got a scenario you want us to play with, uh, bet it or forget it, we'll do that coming up at 115. But next, JR is going to join the show. What's he think the Blues should do in net? Has Ville Husso earned the job, at least for now? We'll ask Jeremy Rutherford next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Time for the Rutherford Report on 101 ESPN. Anything you folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to be joined by our Blues insider for 101 ESPN. And he writes over at The Athletic as well. He is Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on BK and Ferrario. JR, what's going on, man? How was last night as you watched Chris Pronger's number get hung up into the rafters? Yeah, it was something. Uh, finally, you know, I know that uh, we've had COVID for a couple of years, and and actually, you know, Chris's career was kind of prolonged because the money got shifted around in his last contract. Uh, but you knew this day would come, and and so to see it uh, go up in the Raptors last night was was great. You guys have been doing a great job covering it with all the guests. I had one quick story, if I could add. I remember uh, I was at the Post Dispatch writing. I think I was covering high school or college sports at the time, and the trade gets made. And my boss at the Post-Dispatch calls, and he said, go get some fan reaction and, and write a story about it. And so I live near Ted Drew's. Imagine that, right? And so, so I go over to Ted Drew's, and there was a couple there that was getting ice cream, but the wife had walked away to kind of to go up and get her order. And so when she comes back, I'm interviewing the husband. And so she sees her husband being asked a question by what looked like a reporter. And so she said, what is it, the death penalty question? And he looks at her and he goes, it's worse. They traded Shanahan. They traded Brent. It's worse than the death penalty. And so that was uh, the crux of my story that day. But I can just echo everything you guys have been talking about the past couple of days is just an unpopular trade but how well it worked out. Well, JR, if I can get one more story from you, because I'll take you back to uh, to when a young Alex Ferrario was interning with you at a, at a Blues game, and you gave him a recorder, and you told him to go into the press bo- or the uh, the locker room afterwards, and uh, I, I walked in there, and I kind of got yelled at by a player because I must have asked a terrible question. Did you ever get yelled at by Chris Pronger in the locker room? You know, he I caught the tail end. My Actually, one of my very first stories on the beat was the Chris Pronger trade to Edmonton. Oh, wow. And, 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 and so I didn't catch a, a lot of his career. Obviously, I watched it, but I wasn't in the locker room kind of getting hollered at by Prongs. But, but uh, kind of interesting. So one of my very first stories is, hey, Chris Pronger's been traded to Edmonton. Well, Derek Gould was coming off the beat at that time and going to the Cardinals, but he had a great relationship with Chris Pronger. So we double-teamed the story. He calls Chris Pronger like at 1040 at night. I think Prongs was at a wedding that night. Uh, and I just wrote the X's and O's. He's been traded for, you know, Eric Brewer and three players that you've never heard of and so and so forth. And, uh, and then I think I submitted a few paragraphs. He gave the Pronger quotes, and we banged out the story. But, yeah, that was early on and when I was covering the team. He's Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on the show. Uh, 
JR, I did want to ask you about the team that we saw on the ice last night as well, because that was one hell of a victory for them over a central division foe who was competing with the Blues at, at the start of that game for second in the division. The Blues looked lost for the first 10 minutes or so of that game, but then they just dominated from from basically there on out. What did you see that stood out to you last night as the Blues are, are starting to get healthy once again, just missing Buchnevich from their forward group? Yeah, they looked really dominating after that uh, start. I know Craig Ruby said after the game that he, he didn't mind the start necessarily. You know, he pointed to the five on three, and you know, I agree with that. You know, they were outshot what fourteen to one at one point. So anyway, you slice it. You know, it's a slow start, but you know they've had great second periods. And I know last night they kind of turned it on late in the first period, got a couple goals, and then got a couple more early in the second. But what stood out to me, BK, and I looked it up last night, they lead the league in goals for in the second period. I think the number is up to 56 now and they're, they've allowed 31 and that's the fifth fewest in the league. So the differential in that second period, which I know you guys have analyzed the past couple of weeks is just really drastic. And, and so they played really well and, and I felt like they dominated the game at, at parts. And I think that uh, the depth up front, when you look at those line combinations still without Buchnevich, you know, is incredible that they can look like that. Ivan Barbashev has just been phenomenal this season. Ryan O'Reilly is rediscovering his offense and Braden Chen, you get him back in the lineup and those were two of the best shots I've ever seen him take as a blue. So they, they were just really clicking once they got rolling last night. So JR, we've been trying to figure this out and I'm curious your thoughts when Pavel Buchnevich is available, which if everything goes well, he could be out of protocol come Friday's game. Where does he fit into this lineup? How do you compile these lines if you're Craig Bruby? Because you're starting to build chemistry now with Ryan O'Reilly, and I don't know if you want to break that up. Yeah, that line last night was just something. And I talked to, we asked uh, Craig Bruby about the uh, line combinations before last night's game, and he said, listen, I want to keep Tarasenko and Thomas and, and Kairu together. You know, as it turned out, they didn't have a great game. Uh, but you look at that uh, line that he constructed last night with Barbashev and O'Reilly, and uh, Shen, and they were terrific. And, you know, I think Darren Pang made a great point, uh, I believe they did on the broadcast last night, that, you know, Shen playing on the wing, it gives him a chance to come in the zone and, and take the type of shots that he took last night. So perhaps that's something that sticks. You know, I don't think one game is going to take Craig Bruby away from the uh, Tarasenko, Thomas, Kairou. I think, you know, he's going to let them roll. You know, where does Buchnevich fit? You know, it's certainly going to be in that top six, you know, worst-case scenario top nine, and it's going to be a trickle-down effect. So who comes out, you know, a Clint Costin, somebody, uh, we don't know. Uh, but he's got a lot of options, and we saw last night, as we've seen a few times this year, you know, it seems like a lot of them are working. Yeah, I, I also wanted to mention that something else that Darren Pang said on the broadcast last night. He, he talked about how it, we haven't seen a lot of Braden Shin on the right side on the wing. He's mostly played on the left side. And according to Panger, Shin told him that he prefers to play on the right side, similar to, to David Perron. I found that to be interesting, and maybe that's just going to be a better fit for him. So hopefully that ends up being the case long term. The other big storyline coming out of that one, JR, was Ville Husso and his performance once again against a quality opponent. Uh, you've been tracking this. I know Luke Quarick has, has as well. His last nine games at home, he's now 8-0, and and he has a 95% save percentage. <laughs> he's been outstanding at home ice in particular but really overall this season he's been really good for the blues jr do they turn 
things over, at least for the time being, to Ville Husso as kind of the de facto number one goalie? I know it it becomes a little difficult because you got a Sunday, Monday, back to back this week, and then next week you got Saturday, Sunday. So maybe it doesn't even much matter. But is he your number one goalie for all intents and purposes right now? Yeah. So you know, answering the question, do we label it? Do we say that de facto number one? Do we turn to that phrasing? I don't know. All I know is that Ville Husso is winning games. He's battling. Uh, you know, up until Jordan Bennington's last game, I thought he had played pretty well the past two or three games. But the bottom line is, Huso's out playing him right now. Whether he's the backup who's getting a couple starts in a row or you're calling him the de facto number one, I think he's got to be in the net. You know, who knows how it'll break down here, but perhaps you come back Huso against uh, Seattle. You know, Bennington gets the, the, the uh, first game of the back-to-back. Huso gets the second game, so that gives Huso two out of three. Who knows? You, you have to play this out. Look, I've seen this transpire so many times over the years, you know, whether it was Manny Legacy, Chris Mason, you know, Jake Allen, Jordan Bennington, these, it happens to all of them at some point. It's, it's no poor reflection on Jordan Bennington. I believe, you know, at some point, you know, he'll go on a run. But right now, Huso's the guy, and you got to get him in the net regardless of what you're calling him. JR, I said earlier today, with all of these guys playing the way that they are, and especially Pavel Buchnevich coming back to the lineup, there were two guys that I felt like needed to step up their game uh, otherwise, if they if they can't, they're going to have to accept a role on possibly a fourth line down the stretch, and that was Perron and Sundquist. Do those two guys stick out to you, or is there somebody else? Well, I think Perron coming back last night, you know, we've seen some guys come back, uh, you know, from having a few games off and, and just look great. I think Tori Krug did it earlier. Uh, you know, I didn't think that, that Perron looked great last night, but, hey, I give him the benefit of the doubt after being out for a few. Um, you know, you got to be back on that back check. Uh, but, you know, I like David Prime on this team. I think he's, you know, guaranteed pencil man, top nine guy. Uh, did he stand out last night? You know, it, it's no. Um, you know, I think with uh, Sunquist, you know, I still look at him as a guy who's trying to come back from the injuries. And some night you're going to see the, I don't want to say burst, but you're going to see that Sunquist that we've come to know. And some nights you aren't. And, you know, I think that, that he has his off night. So that's the whole purpose of having such depth in that top 12, it's going to be different guys every night. Look, I mean, we talked about Tarasenko, Kairu Thomas. They carried this team and played unbelievable for three or four games. You know, last night, you know, I didn't think they were good at all. So uh, last night you get the uh, Barbashev, O'Reilly, and Shen line to do the work. So it's going to happen from different guys on different nights. He's Jeremy Rutherford, Blues Insider for 101 ESPN and The Athletic. Give him a follow on Twitter, at JP Rutherford. If you haven't read it yet, he had a great piece the other day on uh, Chris Pronger talking to a bunch of the former teammates, people around the Blues organization, and just talking to Prongs himself about his 47 different defensemen that he played with in his time here in St. Louis. Really good piece over at The Athletic. JR, appreciate the time as always, man. We'll talk with you again next week. Sounds good, boys. Thanks. You got it. That's Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on 101 ESPN. Alex, in terms of the way that they construct these lines moving forward, who do you think ends up moving down to that fourth line? Because last night they've got basically their top nine, but missing Pavel Buchnevich. That's the one guy that's going to enter the mix, and he's not going to be on the fourth line when he returns. If everybody is healthy, who do you bump down? Who ends up on that fourth line that was in a top three line role last night? Well, I think Oscar Sundquist, he was on the fourth line last night, but I mm-hmm. think he is going to be on that. I think it's David Perron. I mean, I go through this lineup, and I look at the guys who match the identity of what Craig Bruby wants on the fourth line. Straight, to the point, style of hockey. And everybody plays it, but the guys that should be in the top nine right now, 
have just been producing. And maybe David Perron changes our opinion and he starts lighting it up again because the guy has had a rough season with everything he's had to go through. But Perron plays the physical brand of hockey. Curb said it best last night on post game with me. You know when David Perron's on his game because he's winning every puck battle on the boards. And he's just not doing that right now. But if he's on his game and you have Buchnevich clicking, because Barbashev's not going anywhere. Like, Barbashev needs to be performing where he's at because he's a point-per-game player right See, now. See, that's that's my big question is... You can't put him on the fourth line. No, 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 no. I'm not saying fourth line, but... I think the question is, do you want to continue having Ryan O'Reilly, Shin, and Barbashev together after what we saw from them last night? And this sometimes this stuff works itself out. Maybe they don't play well together in the next yeah. game, and uh, you decide to move Barbie off of it. But if you want him to be up there on that line with O'Reilly and Shin, you need to keep Brown on that third line because he's your only real center to, li- to center that line. If you don't, if you're okay moving Barbashev off of that line, then I think that pushes Brown to the fourth line, and you have Barbie as your third line center with O'Reilly and Thomas. See, I don't know the if top two I don't centers. know if Brown's in the lineup when they're fully healthy. I think Brown might be out of the lineup uh, oh, because because I think Buchnevich, O'Reilly, Shen. If you're going down the road, you're going Thomas yeah. Kairu, Tarasenko, Barbashev would be in the center position with a Sod Brandon Sod and a and a David Perron, and then your fourth line would be looking at a Sunquist. Bozak, and then it comes down to Costin versus Brown. Costin versus Brown. And that's where it comes down to what type of game are you playing? Because a game like last night, if you were fully healthy, I think you're probably not playing Brown and you're playing Costin because Costin brings the physical brand. If you're playing a team like the Colorado Avalanche where you want reach and you want size, that's where I think you're going to Logan Brown. And I think that's a benefit for Craig Bruby. It's what he had with Sanford and Sammy Blay back in that uh, matchup against the Dallas Stars when they went on the cup run. Yeah, 65780 is the air comfort service text line from the 314. Guys, who's in the top nine if Perron isn't? This, this is really a question of, of Brown versus Perron because the other eight guys are all virtual guarantees for the top nine. You're going to have Barbie, O'Reilly, Shin, Tarasenko, Thomas, Kairou, Saad, and Buchnevich in your top yeah, nine. That's, Th- those guys are guarantees. So and it, then, it's not even Brown and Perron. It's, it's, well, yeah, it's Brown and Perron. Two, two players for one spot there in the top nine, yeah. and then whoever you bump down, that will replace likely either Costin, Bozak, or Sonny on your fourth line. I it, don't think Sonny's getting moved from the lineup. So it, really, and We also brought it up earlier. Like It could be, it could be Brown and Bozak depending on how Brown's paying and how Bozak's playing. So, I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into it, which is a great thing. But right now, it, it, I mean, the question is, is it Perron? Is it Brown? Is it Sunquist? That's what Craig Berube's going to have to decipher. I know this is crazy. I don't, I don't think they'll do this because of how much they love Tyler Bozak and what he brings for them defensively. But a fourth line with Costin, Brown, and Sonny is pretty intriguing to me. That's it, younger. It's a little bit more dynamic. Uh, it defensively maybe it's not what it is say if, it's if Bozak's in, out there but it's intriguing but you want that you I'm thinking more in a playoff game and that might be a liability for me in the third period whereas a line of Bozak Costin Sunquist Bozak Brown Sunquist that's not as much of a liability in my opinion for sure with Alex Ferrari on Tanner Hendrickson I'm Brandon Kylie coming up in 15 minutes I thought last night the start of the game in particular was incredible theater. It was great to watch as a fan of just seeing the Blues versus the Predators again. Can that be a rivalry with the way that the schedule is currently constructed with the divisions? We'll talk about that coming up at 1.30, but next, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Let's play a game of Bet It or Forget It here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 
Vegas sets them up, and we're here to make the call. It's BK and Ferrario's Bet It or Forget It on 101 ESPN. Pretty good for my eye hurts, one man. eye. I just hit myself in the eye with my headphones. Alex made fun of me for like a month for running into a tree. No, you didn't. No, it wasn't the tree. You hit yourself. You dropped a food processor on your head. Well, I, I did and also when you ran into the thermostat and you ran into the thermostat in here. Yeah, that's that. You did that too, man. You're worse than me. I also walked into a tree when we were at Ballpark Village. That's oh, the one man, I was that talking was, about. That was fantastic. I ended Oof. up with a scrape across my face. You guys should have seen that. Um, incredible. You just literally punched yourself in the face with your headphones. Yeah, I tried to open them up and then just wham right in the face. He was damn near crying during the break. It hurt, it's man. It's a borderline miracle that he's able to even be on the air right now. I'm pretty sure he has black eyes. Bet it or forget it, getting hit in the eye with an object hurts worse than anywhere else. No, forget, forget it. The nose. Yes. No, mm-mm. I was thinking about somewhere else, but that, uh-uh. Nope, oh, that's, nope, a nope, nope, nope. Nope. <laughs> that's a nope, good nope, one, too. No, That's a good one, too. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Okay, not named that area. It's the worst spot to get hit. Yeah. Better to forget knows. it. Better to forget it. The seven seeds weren't even worth expanding the playoffs over hey, in the man, NFL. Amen, text line. Bet that. Woo. Why? Get Pittsburgh and Philadelphia out of here. I'm hey, sick and tired Pittsburgh. of average teams making the playoffs. Read the room, NBA. We don't need 10 teams in each conference. Damn. Damn. Sorry. Um, that's just, hey, at least, at least Pittsburgh made it interesting in the first five minutes. Philly couldn't do anything. Yeah, I I liked Philly in that game. Yeah, I know you did, buddy. I know you did, buddy. Bet on Philly and take the points. They'll keep it close. I think they're a I serious tease. upset. You know Oof. what really sucks? I teased that one up to 14 and a half, and it still wasn't enough. <laughs> That still wasn't enough points for them to be able to cover. They they just looked totally out of place. I So it's easy to say that right now, and that's going to be the popular stance. But if Lamar Jackson had stayed healthy this year, we're not talking about this. It completely changes the way that we're looking at the playoffs because the Ravens would have got in. And if the Chargers just took care of business, they would have been a fun team as well. So there were seven worthy teams in the AFC just didn't take care of business. The Steelers did, so they deserved it over them. And they stunk. They weren't a good football team. We had to watch them for another week, and the Chiefs ended up getting what essentially was a bye. But, and the same thing for the Bucks. But I, I, I think moving forward, we'll think it's fine. But this was a, a really bad start to it, for I, sure. I honestly could have cared less to have even seen the Chargers and the Ravens get in. Whoa. Because I understand the Chargers are... Exciting, but I mean, they were just an up and down team all year. They're basically a 500 team, except you can't have 500 Don't for 17 games. Don't you disrespect his team Same like with Baltimore. That. Baltimore. I mean, the only guy we talked about with Baltimore is Lamar Jackson. The rest of the team was blah. The Chargers could have given the Bengals a game. Eh. And, the, and if Lamar Jackson and the Ravens would have made it, they would have made it a lot more interesting this, than the Steelers did against the Chiefs. They would have at least had to, the Chiefs would have had to push in the second half, whereas against the Steelers, by the fourth quarter, the only conversation anybody was having was when do the Chiefs take out Patrick Mahomes? And that's not a fun conversation to be having about a playoff game. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for bet it or forget it. Guys, bet it or forget it. The Blues will have a 20 goal score on their fourth line by the end of the year. Like we'd be asking that question. 20 goal scorer in the past or 20 goal scorer this season? I guess we can take that however we want to. Uh, I don't think they'll have one this season on it. But I think David Perron ends up on the fourth line. Because if so, he's kind of on pace for that. I don't, I mean, 
I think he'll. He's on pace right now for 18. I goals. think at worst he'll be playing a third line role. Okay. I think your fourth line is going to be Bozak, Sonny, and then somebody else. And I don't know who that other person is. Sonny's not going to get there this season. I told you in the break, and maybe I'm crazy with this, but I think Sonny could have a Barbashev year next year when he's healthy. I just don't know how he gets there. We'll find out, but man, he was trending in that direction in the 2019-2020 season before things got stopped. He had 12 goals, though, that year in 57 games. We, we've we already seen Barbie this year in 38 yeah, games. But look, what Bar- but look what Barbie did at 50, last year at 50 or 30-something games. I know, but Bar- Barbie's minor league numbers, his AHL numbers would have indicated that he was more of a goal scorer than we saw early on in his career. I, I just, I think, I think we're I underplaying know, what Sonny can do when he's fully healthy, but regardless, Sonny's not going to get there. Bozak's not going to get there. And I don't think Brown or Costin's going to get there. So I'm going to forget this. Yeah, I'm going to forget it too, because I think David Prawn's going to ultimately be like what you were saying, that third line role. Cause I think he's going to get back in a couple games. It may take a while for him to get back in the rhythm of things. I still expect David Prawn to play at that level that we've kind of seen in the past, maybe a little bit below that. So I don't know if he'll touch the fourth line this year. So I'll forget this. I'm going to forget it as well. It would it would require David Perron playing on that fourth line. And I just think that's going to be a last resort for them. I can't see, given this coaching staff, I think they're going to give him every opportunity to get right first before they go to him and say, hey, we need you to be a fourth line player for us. Like there may be a time at this point or in this season that they have the conversation with Perron that they had with steam might have to happen eventually, but we're not there yet. I think we're still probably about two months away from that conversation taking place. And that would require him to continue to struggle offensively. Six, five, seven, eight, Oh, is the air comfort service tax line from the six, one, eight better to forget it. One of the quarterbacks that made the playoffs this year will be the starting quarterback for the Steelers next year. One of the starting quarterbacks in the playoffs this year will be on the Steelers next year. So it's not going to be Josh Allen or Mac Jones. Not going to be Joe Burrow. I don't think Tannehill is going anywhere. Derek Carr, maybe. Jalen Hurts, maybe. Those are probably the two. Or, Or I guess you could say Jimmy G. So Derek Carr, Jimmy G, or Jalen Hurts, one of them will start for the Steelers next year. I can see Jimmy G being that. Jimmy makes some sense. Jimmy G makes probably the most sense to me. I I don't, as much as we say it, I don't see Derek Carr going anywhere. And and even, I mean, makes no sense for the Steelers to go get Jalen Hurts. Like, stick with Big Ben. Well, he's retiring. Is he? (laughs) Yeah. He might be the Yadier Molina of the NFL. Other than being the GOAT. Yeah, I'm going to bet this one. I think Jimmy G makes a lot of sense for that team. I'm going to bet this one, too, because I think Jimmy G makes sense. I also think Derek Carr is going to be dealt. When they fired the GM yesterday, made me think they're getting ready to enter a rebuild. And, and the reason I say that is because I think that they shouldn't tear it down, and I think that was the aspect of what that GM wanted to do. I think ownership says, okay, let's start new. Let's go get a new coach. That's why I kind of lean towards Derek Carr is going to be dealt. So I could see either Carr or Jimmy G in this group. Somebody says... Uh... The Steelers question is probably hinting at Aaron Rodgers as well. They, they can hint at it all they want. Aaron Rodgers ain't going anywhere. He's got a contract. He's going to be back in. Look yeah, Green Bay. Bay ain't letting him go anywhere. Yeah, there's just no way they're going to let him walk. I'm going to go ahead and bet this as well. I think Derek Carr or Jimmy G are both real options for Pittsburgh. And I actually think they could get, end up right back in the playoffs if they get either of those two guys and they stay healthy in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh has some good weapons. Deontay Johnson struggles to catch the ball sometimes, but he's incredibly talented. Chase Claypool, I don't know why he ends up in the doghouse seemingly every other week, but that dude we saw last year is a lightning rod. Is he doing TikTok videos? That's Juju. Yeah, Um, but is he doing TikTok videos with Juju? I don't know, maybe, but 
Najee Harris is a stud. If they can get that offensive line in place and playing at a higher level than they did this year, Pittsburgh could easily be a 10, maybe 11 win team in 2022. So I'll go ahead and bet this as well. I do think somebody that was in the playoffs this year will be their starting quarterback going into next season. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. It's a, it's 132. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. In about 15 minutes, we'll get back into the BK and Ferrario rewind, talking about what the Blues decisions are with their net and also whenever they get back to being fully healthy. But next, can you have a rivalry right now with the way that the Central Division schedule is set up? If you can, I think it's about to start again with the Preds. We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I don't know if it's a Tennessee thing. I don't know if it's a Nashville specific thing. But for some reason, we don't give the Nashville Predators the respects that they've probably deserved based on the way they've played so far this year. R-E-S-P-T-C. Something like that, Alex. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Last night was a big game for the Blues, and winning that one head-to-head against Nashville put them in second place in the Central Division, overtaking Nashville because you've got a game in hand and you've tied the same number of points as them so far this year. Alex, this was the Blues rivalry there for a brief period of time. I, I know in the past, we it was Chicago, it was Detroit. Those were the hated rivals. There was a brief period where it did feel like Blues versus Predators was the big game over the course of the season. And last night had that feel to it again. Early on, it was super physical between those two teams. Robert Bortuzzo getting into the early fight. It was chippy. The Predators were playing very well. That felt like a playoff atmosphere, honestly, at Enterprise Center. I am curious, though, and 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line uh, to get our listeners involved with this one as well. Do you think you can have a rivalry in the Central Division, at least in the regular season, with the way that the schedule is now constructed? Because this was the first time that the Blues have seen the Predators since November, and they're not going to see them again until March. Yeah. They see them two more times all season, once in mid-March, once in mid-April. I want this to be a rivalry again, and I think if you get to the playoffs, maybe it can be, but can you have those same kinds of division rivals with the way that the schedule is now set up in the NHL? I I don't think so. I I mean, look, rivalries, in my opinion, I mean, unless you have what it used to be against Chicago and Detroit where it was a bloodbath every single night, which that's just not how games are anymore. Unless you you have a seven-game series against a team, I don't think you're really going to have a rivalry. I mean, think about that 2018-2019 season. Like, it was the Winnipeg Jets. That's who everyone hated. And then you play them in the first round, you hate them even more. Same with the Dallas Stars. Like, if you have an entertaining playoff series, they're a rivalry, in my opinion. But I think this new schedule takes away from that. I mean, think about this. You play Nashville. You've played them twice already. You play them two more times. And the times that you play them are March and April, correct? Yep. Minnesota, you've played once. And you only play them two more times, and both are played in April. Now, Minnesota game in April, when you play them twice in a matter of two or three weeks, that's going to feel like a rivalry going into the playoffs. But I think this schedule takes away from the rivalry rivalry aspect because you, you have to play so many teams with so many teams in the Central Division now. But I think when you look at a rivalry that could be built, this makes a lot of sense because Nashville is identical to the Blues, 
in the way that they play, in the way that they play, in the way they've constructed their roster in Minnesota. Minnesota is identical to the way that the Blues play their style of hockey. Physical, hard-hitting, heavy. Joey said it best. I mean, Nashville's built for a playoff series. That's what they did this offseason. So um, I think you'll see a rivalry between these two teams, but it won't have the same heat that it has going into the playoffs as you would when you play a team six or seven times. Somebody on the text line, it's it's a fair question to ask. I should have mentioned this from the 314. Forgive my ignorance, but what is the new schedule? Now, when you play against your division, it's three, three four. to four games that you will play against those divisional foes. It used to be six. Yeah, because you're done playing the Dallas Stars, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah you are. I, I just went back to a random year. So 2011, 2012, for example, on what I'm talking about here. And I looked up when the Blues played Chicago, because at the time that was the big rivalry that we were all excited for. And they ended up playing Chicago six times that year. Four of them came between February 19th and March 29th. Like You were playing them over the course of basically six weeks every other week. And that's how you end up building a little bit of a rivalry between one another. I, I think these are just they're almost scheduled too far apart against a lot of these teams or it's just not enough times to be able to play against one another until you get into the posts in into the playoffs. So I, I think it's really hard to have a rivalry with the way that the schedule is formatted. Somebody else made an interesting point, though, on the text line. I don't think it's about how the schedule is played from the three one four. I think it's how the game is played now. There's a lot of physicality that has been taken out of the game, and that takes out a lot of the emotion for us as fans as well. Tanner, I know you were talking about this earlier, and you, you kind of mentioned a similar point. Yeah, without as much physicality in the game now, to me, that that's kind of I'm with the texture. You just lose kind of that vibe for that rivalry because those Blackhawks series that we're talking about, those were heavy hitting. I mean, you had guys like David Backus, and he was going up against a Duncan Keith for the Chicago Blackhawks. I think was Saad a part of that team, heavy-hitting guy. So you, you lose some of that aspect for a rivalry, and not only that, then you have the shorter, the three, four times you're meeting a team, which takes away from it. Now the only way I think a rivalry develops in the National Hockey League is A, through the playoffs, and B, part of the other reason that made the Blackhawks and Blues kind of that great rivalry in this early 2010s period was because it was kind of that big brother, little brother kind of scenario where the Blackhawks were in that dynasty. They're on the end of the dynasty, and the Blues were that up-and-coming team. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it was a year or two in a row, they could not get past the Blackhawks. And then they take them down in seven games. Troy Brower has the big goal. And that's kind of that. That's that. That's what builds that rivalry as well. Like Right now, if I had to say it, I would say the rival for the Blues could be Colorado because they swept you last season in the playoffs. They're probably going to win the Central again this year. And they're that team that Doug Armstrong has said multiple times in press conferences, hey, that's the team that we have to beat. He said it when we had him on, what was that, early December, I think. He said, yeah, I still view Colorado as the best team in the Central, even though Nashville and Minnesota are off to hot starts. So I think kind of that big brother, little brother aspect is going to be what kind of leads to a rivalry. I hope St. Louis and Nashville can become one because I've been to a game when the Blues were playing in Nashville and not only did they say we sucked after we gave up a goal every time, it was an intense rivalry. It was intense to be there, and it was fun to be there. So I hope it can become a rivalry. I think what it's going to be, though, is it's going to have to be Colorado because of the playoffs and viewing them as the top team in the Western Conference. Yeah, but, but I mean, sometimes it doesn't come down to that. I mean, like, everyone probably hates Colorado because you hate the best teams. But, like... And Kadri. Yeah, I mean, Kadri, of course, is there, but... 
But like Colorado is like a different animal to me. Like they're a rivalry because you just don't like people saying that they're the best all the time. But there's the phys- competitive rivalry. Yeah, there's a physical brand of hockey that's like these guys are annoying and I hate them. That's what Chicago always was. Now, when Chicago got better, of course, they were the team that was like Colorado. It's like I just hate watching them win. But before that, you had the rivalry of, God, they're just annoying to play against. That's where I think Nashville's at. That's where I think Minnesota is. I think it's more impactful to have a team that's on the same level as you to have that rivalry than the team that you're chasing. Am I off here? I I view right now, and maybe this is me getting lost in the moment, I view Nashville as more of a a rival, I guess would be the way to put it, but I, I don't think they're up to that term yet. But I view them as more of a rival for this Blues team than the Wild. See, I don't know if I don't even think the Blues have a rival right now. No, I'm with you, but I'm saying like if we were to name, I, I think the one that is probably the closest in the Central is, is probably Colorado. If we're being honest, um, but between Nashville and Minnesota, Nashville or excuse me, Minnesota just doesn't get my my juices flowing the same way. And, and I don't know if that's just because the Blues have had their number over the last couple of years. Maybe that's the difference there. Maybe this is just a me thing. But watching the game last night, I, I that got me like pumped oh yeah watching the first period in particular it legitimately had the feel of a playoff game between those two teams and you don't see that a whole lot in regular season it's very rare that you see something like that Uh, the winter classic maybe had a little bit of that feel but that was more due to the venue than it was the opponent I, i i think for me nashville is closer to becoming that team than minnesota is but maybe that's a me thing more than it is the audience. No, I, I I mean, I think Minnesota and Nashville are on the same level as St. Louis because I think they're all built the same way. They like to play the physical brand of hockey. They have offense from their defensemen and they have a lot of forwards. I think the blues have the advantage for how deep they are compared to Minnesota and Nashville. I think the difference comes down to who, who is more frustrating to you. Like the blues have the Minnesota wild numbers, so, like, I don't know if fans view that as much of a rivalry as the Nashville Predators. And that, I think that's why I'm viewing it that way, because, like, when I when you we were watching won a game, game, you hadn't won a game in the last two years against Nashville before last night. Exactly. And, and their style, I, I do think I know the Wild technically play the same style as the Blues. The, the Predators seem more physical to me. Yeah. That, that seemed like a team that was ready to come out and match and honestly exceed the Blues energy right away. Yeah, they brought the physicality because they knew how they had to play them. I don't see that very often from very many other teams. Um, not not in this same tier of group of, group of teams. So I I think for me I, I view Nashville as being closer to being that kind See, of a threat. That, for them. That's interesting because I view Minnesota, and I think part of the reason I don't think we saw the full, Minnesota A wasn't healthy in the Winter Classic. Neither were the Blues, though. Really, well, and that was an entity they, you really can't judge yeah, and either. You and you couldn't be physical because it was so cold. I mean, let's just be honest. Yeah. The thing for me with Minnesota, though, is I see two rising stars competing each other like Crosby and Ovechkin were promoted when they were rising in the NHL, and that is Kairou and Kaprizov. I think those two are going to have some awesome battles for years to come, and I think they're going to be the guys that are going to be promoted by the National Hockey League as, hey, here's your primetime matchup. It's Wild, it's Blues. I think the Wild are a much more physical team than what we saw in the Winter Classic. I understand the Blues have had their number, but I think that just adds to the intensity of, oh, we lose one time. I think it just adds to the importance of that rivalry. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. If you've missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Had a great conversation with Barrett Jackman. We caught up with Mike Keenan. Yeah, that Mike Keenan. Check that conversation out on the podcast page. Also, Danny Mack and Jeremy Rutherford joined the show. Coming up next, though, this division is preparing everybody for a deep playoff run. What does that mean for the Blues? We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. 
We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. is preparing its teams for a deep playoff run with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Alex, we were talking about this before the show because watching that game last night, you could feel that was a playoff level intensity oh, yeah. between the Blues and the Predators. You're going to get a lot more of these as we go down the stretch with Minnesota, Nashville, Colorado, uh, some really good teams in this central division. A- Alex, I think I agree with your assessment of this. Like I, Whoever comes out of this division I have to imagine in the Western Conference is going to be your favorite to win the Cup, or uh, totally. win, at least to get out of the West. Joey said it last night, and I thought he said it perfect. The team that gets out of the Central Division is going to win the Stanley Cup. I, I mean, uh, if not that, they're going to be in the Stanley Cup. They're going to represent the West. Because think about the way that this works right now. You have four teams that are going to be in the playoffs from the Central Division. Your top three, and then the fourth team in the Central is already, like if you were to pick up Minnesota and place them in the Pacific, they'd be the first place team. Vegas would be right behind them. So wild card races, you're going to have the Central, and you're probably going to have, I think, the San Jose Sharks. The San Jose Sharks would play the number one team, so they'd play Colorado, and then Minnesota or St. Louis or Nashville, who's ever that the wild card would take on Vegas. That's going to be a tough matchup. You get through that, then you're taking on more than likely Colorado. And if you get through that, whoever comes out of the other side of the Pacific Division, I mean, it's going to be smooth sailing for you, in my opinion. It's going to feel a lot like what the Blues did in the 2018-2019 season. You beat Winnipeg, everyone's favorite, and then you take down Dallas in a double overtime game seven. You get to San Jose, and you're like, what are we even doing here? Let's just fast forward to the Stanley Cup final. That's yeah. what I think this year's going to be. I think you're going to see that again. The teams that are in this division are just more prepared for what it's going to take to win a All cup of this them year. Are. They, they, they play the right style. Uh, they are deeper. It's going to be a gauntlet to get out of this division. Hell, just to make the playoffs out of this division. Somebody that's a really good hockey team in the Central is going to miss the playoffs this year because of how deep and difficult it's going to be to get out of this thing. But I think that sets up really well for what you're going to end up needing to have in the postseason. And the Blues are going to be right there uh, as we continue moving forward. The Blues versus the Kraken on Friday night. That's the next time that they will be in action. We'll have more breakdown of last night's game and what they should do in net as we move along here on BK and Ferrario. Coming up next, it's the fast lane from 2 to 6. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 right here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Splash, splash, splash. Apply a little splash. When your windshield's getting dirty, just apply a little splash. When your windshield's full of grime, bugs, dirt, and snow, just use a little splash and be safe on the road. Apply a little splash When your windshield's getting dirty Just apply a little splash See safely on the road When you apply a little splash GEICO asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, GEICO can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners' or renters' coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance, and more, and GEICO is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. 
It's easy. Simply go to Geico.com or contact your local agent today. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.